How's it going, guys? Welcome to the Forsake of Argument podcast, and I'm here with my brother-in-law, Red. Red, Red is the biggest semen that I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's short, it's punchy, but it sums it up. Yeah, no, that works. That works. Yeah. And allow me to introduce my brother-in-law, a, uh, <laughs> a man who is built so much like a tank, both mentally and physically, that they named him after one. I give you the bane of storm doors, Abrams. Hey! <laughs> we got a soundboard, folks, and we're going to abuse it today. Well, to start things off, I think it would just be rude of us to be drinking without our friends. Absolutely. So I think we should introduce what we started with today. We've yeah. got a scotch. Yeah. That you brought over. Yeah. I've never even heard of it. Introduce us to this scotch. Okay. So this isn't a high dollar scotch. This is a pretty inexpensive one. Uh, it's a blended scotch. Uh, it's called the Famous Groose. And it's it's not bad. It's a little harsh on the finish, but it's got some pretty good notes to it. It's got a good nose. Um, definitely got a uh, definitely got a good flavor. So if you are looking for a scotch that you want to, I mean, it's a decent sipping scotch. But especially yeah. if you want to do some sort of cocktails with a scotch in there, I think this is a this is a good choice. Uh, you know, after tasting it, I'm like, yeah, that actually would be a good one to blend with something else. Like oh yeah, it's it it doesn't carry so much of its own unique flavor that you can't enjoy it with other things. So one of my favorite cocktails is actually called a Godfather. Okay. And it is, I'm, I'm having to refill right now because I, I'm already having to oh, refill. Yeah, no, I'll just go ahead and take another hit on yeah, it. No, we, we drank, we pre-grammed a little bit too much in our precast. <laughs> right. So anyway, no, it's um, one of my favorite cocktails is actually called a Godfather and it is scotch whiskey and amaretto. Okay. And it's absolutely delicious, but a lot of times I'm, I don't want to waste my good scotch by mixing it with amaretto. <laughs> right. So this is a good one. This is, like I said, it, it's fine for a sipping scotch if, if that's what you want. But it's also great. It's not one of those high-dollar ones. It's not one of those really refined ones that has a lot of complexity to it that you're feeling like, oh, man, what am I doing hiding all these flavors with <laughs> right. some sweet amaretto? Yeah. Or if you want to make a like – I've, I've known a few guys that have made a Manhattans with scotch as opposed to okay. bourbon. Okay. And, uh, that, I think that's pretty good. I'm not a huge fan of bitters, but gotcha. Yeah. Well, I got something I'm going to make a blended drink for you at some point. All right. It's a it's a nightcap. Okay. I think you'll enjoy it. But, All right. Um. Anyways, we're we'll we'll move past the scotch for a moment yeah. because there's something I realized when we when we started hanging out again was like I don't think we have that great of a history of each other. <laughs> no, no. We uh, like I said before, I, I know more of your history because your wife has told my wife, sorry, your sister has told me so many things about you growing up. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, like a lot of the times when we've gotten together, we've talked about current things. Um, I haven't really talked a whole lot about my history. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit that I knew because I knew you back when you started dating my sister when yeah. you were still pretty young and, and you guys, you know, stuck it out for, I mean... That, that was awesome to see you guys go through that latter part of high school and still end up together because, you know, you kind of find that one. There's no reason to move on. So, no, absolutely not. you know, back in those days, I mean, I knew a little bit about your your high school career, if you will, um, but not not in great detail. You know, you found you found your education, you found your experiences in a lot of different places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're you know, you went on to end up going into the Navy. Yep. And really, I, that's where I think you blossomed as a human being. You, you found oh, yeah. that you had that your intellect really was was something powerful that could be useful. Well, I was always a smart guy, in all honesty. Not just a I, smart I, ass, but a smart guy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, hey, I'd, I'd always rather be a smart ass than a dumbass. You could do both if you wanted. You yeah. can, well, there are some people. <laughs> some people <laughs> are both. Uh, anyway, I so I was the 
the kid that I never really had to try in school. Yeah. Like I, I paid attention in class and I never had to study. I could just easily get A's on the tests. My main problem was that I didn't like doing homework. (laughs) (laughs) You you sound just like me. That was my big issue was I just didn't want to turn assignments in. I'd sit down for a test and I'd, I'd ace a test. And so my grade would just stay right there, that D. Because every test or any project I would do in a classroom, if it was something I could do while I was in school, it was done. If I needed to go home and do it, it wasn't going to. It just wasn't going to happen. Well, and I was I was really good about turning in assignments until sixth grade. Sixth grade, I accidentally left my math book in my locker one yeah. time, and I get to class, and I'm like, "Oh crap! I left my math book in my locker." Like, and I ask my teacher, "Can I go get it?" And she says, "No, you're, you're going to have to. <laughs> you're just done. You're just going to have to to miss that assignment. You're wow. going to have to get a zero for the assignment." That's it's sixth and, grade. Yeah, sixth grade, and I was I was freaking out, and then. The world didn't end. Right. And then you realize, wait a minute, oh. wait a minute. So the world didn't end because I didn't turn in an assignment. Okay. And I didn't stress about turning in assignments ever again. <laughs> the complete <laughs> wrong lesson that she was trying to teach. But hey, you, you can't predict uh, how kids are going to take things. Th- this is true. I mean, my daughters, they did absolutely, they love school. They, they get upset anytime they mess up and they study hard and they do they do the best that they can. And I just keep telling them, like, the fact that you're trying is all that we care about, you know, because I, I look back at my childhood and I'm like, yeah, I, I started around the seventh grade, just started not really caring about schoolwork. And I paid attention as much as I needed to, but unless I was interested in the subject matter, I, I can tell you right now, my favorite subject ever that I ever was in was a class taught by the softball you know, head coach, physics. Just oh, sitting in physics is the only time that I could stay awake and enjoy the entire conversation because it was a blend of algebra, calculus. It was a blend of, of all sorts of, you know, I was into, I enjoyed geometry as I was going through middle school. Um, so it was, it was one of those things where I was like, oh man, this actually all applies. I can actually determine why things happen because I'm that why kid. I, I would ask the stupidest oh, why question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the thing, like. I was the kid, I was asking why not to be annoying, but because I really wanted to know. Exactly, like and, I wanted to know the ins and outs. And and I'm also, I'm that kind of guy, and I've had this conversation with bosses before, that if I'm asking you why, I'm not being insubordinate. I genuinely want to know. Yeah. Because I either don't understand why you're wanting me to do something, or I don't understand why you're wanting me to do it that way. Correct. Because I think that there might be a better way, or there might not be, it might not be an effective use of my time. Yeah. So, if you can get me behind the why, then absolutely, I'll be... I'll be behind it 100%. You'll, you'll get all of my, all of my focus on whatever that is. Um, and if you just say, because I said so, well, that's a cop out. <laughs> yeah. And that, that tells me that you don't fully understand. And if you don't fully understand, then why am I getting behind it? I mean, that's just, that's the way that I was like, even as a kid. And I always wanted to know how things work. I got in trouble because I would take apart my toys and uh, mm-hmm. I actually took apart one of my Nerf guns one time, and I didn't know how to put it back together. And so my dad had to do it. But he didn't have the advantage of having taken it apart, so remembering how it all went back together. But uh, So he was pretty mad about that one. But <laughs> Well, I, I did the same thing. I think I was, we were, at the time, based off of where I was living, I would say I, was, I had to have been around that seven-ish, six or seven-ish years old. And I'd watch my dad work on cars all the time. I'd help him with tools. I understood how to kind of take things apart, but not really electronics. He hadn't messed with electronics. It was more automotive stuff. Um, but I, I went to the garage sale, and they had a transistor radio. And I was like, oh, does that thing work? The guy's like, yeah, I think it works. Okay. You know, no battery in it. So I had a big mom when I got back, you know, 25 cents. You know, I had to beg for that. I had to beg for a battery to throw in there. And I turned it on, and it works. And I just... I just wanted to know what was inside the radio, tore the thing apart. And I remember my mom coming in and being like, there's, you just ruined it. 
no, I didn't. It's fine. Watch. And I put it all back together and it worked perfectly. And so just rub it in. Why don't you? Right. <laughs> but it was just the idea of like, you know, I, I really cared about w- w- the way things went together, the way they actually worked, like what was in it. Because it, to me at that time, it, you know, different age, like now kids have cell phones. Right. But I mean, back then a transistor, just a little handheld transistor radio is still a really cool technology to me. Absolutely. So. I, there, there are a lot. I still think it's cool technology. <laughs> right. But the thing is like, so, yeah, I, I always wanted to know how things work. So I love science class, too. Right. Uh, I did not like math. I, I felt <laughs> I felt like math was just a lot of times it was math for the sake of doing math. Yeah. Like when I could see a practical purpose behind it. Like you mentioned geometry. When I took geometry, I was like, okay, I get this. I can see exactly how I can use this in my everyday life. With like algebra, I hated algebra. Yeah. Then I got into physics class, just like you talked about. I got into physics class, and then all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. So this is how I use algebra to do things that matter. Yep. And then, then I understood and then, and I liked it, but I always loved, I loved physics and I, uh, physics is what actually turned me on. So I was, I enjoyed math, but I was kind of on a, like the slow boat. I was like a little bit ahead of everybody else. Cause I was already in algebra two at the time I was taking physics, which was a little head on both of those from what most people did. Cause most of my friends were going into biology in high school. They're like, you know, when it came to a science, you'd rather do that. I'm like. Physics sounds a little more up my alley. Physics is way more, <laughs> so, way more interesting than biology to yeah. me. As soon as I got into it, though, I realized I could use the math, and the math was like the language of physics. So I was like, oh, that's just, I mean, like, I, physics I, is the language of the universe. It is. <laughs> so thank you for that, Dr. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, but as as I went through that class, I started realizing the importance of knowing the phys- knowing the, the math behind things. And so I that's why I ended up going into calculus and trigonometry. Those are things I would have never gone into had I not had exposure to physics because I, I was kind of like, yeah, I didn't need to go any further with math as far as I knew. Well, and I was always good at math. I just didn't like math. Yeah. I just didn't find, I didn't see the purpose. So, like, and also when I got into statistics in college, mm-hmm. I love statistics, but again, I could see the practical application. You know, for so, me, like the, 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 so your career, you went into the Navy and yep. what's, and that enjoyment of physics and math kind of came into play. Well, yeah. So originally when I went into the military, I wanted to do something very historically military. I wanted to, I wanted to be in combat. I wanted yeah. to, to, to live that role. Um, but your sister would not let me do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no. So yeah. I, I was married when I decided to join, uh, and she wanted me to do something that did not put uh, myself or our marriage at risk. So I was convinced to go into the nuclear program. So I became a nuclear electrician with the Navy, yeah. and uh, that that's something else. For the first time in my life, I had to study. Right. <laughs> now I, I screwed up college a few times because again I didn't want to do homework. I was yeah. I was fine with everything else. Went to class, listened to the lectures, and uh, and I did well in the tests, but I didn't want to do homework. And uh, so I wound up screwing up college three times, and finally I'm like, okay, I need I need a career, and went the military route. And they stuck me in the toughest academic program in the military. <laughs> but what I will say the, the difference in my mindset that, that allowed me to do this was rather than paying to go to school. I was being paid to go to school. Exactly. So now all of a sudden, all this homework wasn't just arbitrary work that they were giving me to do. It was my job. It was your career. Exactly. So that had a completely different weight with me, and I did relatively well. Also, I was, I went from being one of the really smart kids to being in a sea of really smart guys right. and girls. But <laughs> it was all of a sudden, I, I was not the smart one. Yeah. Like, there were a lot of other people there that were a lot smarter than me, and that was a little bit of a kick in the gut. But uh, no, I, I got through it. I 
unfortunately, like I, I had taken this job as kind of my, I'd chosen that field as uh, my compromise and I get through training and I'm like, uh, okay, I know how a nuclear reactor works and how nuclear power works. I don't care anymore. <laughs> and then you kind of moved into what our subject is today, which is the second amendment. You started deciding, Hey, you know, I a little hobby picking up from doing basic training. Yeah. You got into the firearms. Right. Well, so, and the thing is I, I was never a big gun guy, you know, growing up. It's right. not that we were against guns. You know, my dad had a shotgun and I knew where it was. Um, I didn't go messing with it because and I never understood the kids that did because you could watch on TV and see people get shot. So you know that those guns are dangerous. Why the heck would you go and mess with guns? So yeah, I knew where it was. I didn't. Just, I just didn't go mess with it. Uh, I shot BB guns at my grandparents' place. Um, I wound up shooting uh, rifles with uh, the Boy Scouts. I shot shotguns with the Boy Scouts. But um, I I'd actually, I didn't really do anything outside of the Boy Scouts until you, you and I, when uh, before I joined the Navy, you took out and taught me how to shoot handguns for the first time. Yeah. But, and that was the only time that I'd shot before I went into boot camp. And uh, Navy, we don't have a whole lot of firearms training. We had two days of There's combat roles training. in the Navy you can go for, but Absolutely. nuclear tech is not in that role. <laughs> well, but the thing, so what they do is because a lot of the military, a lot of the Navy is a lot more technical um, and not combative roles. Right. They, they don't focus a whole lot on, on firearms. So we got... We had a little bit of uh, manipulation drills and things that we did throughout um, part of boot camp, but then it was only two days of actual uh, firing training. Right. And because, yeah, like, like you said, no, most people don't have to use that in the Navy. Um, but I came out of it. I'm like, all right, so I definitely, I want a gun now. I'm going to go and get one. I know how to use one. Um, and I'd looked at getting a pistol beforehand and uh, my wife was not a big fan because she didn't know how to use one and she didn't want it in the house if she didn't know how to use it. Um, and I didn't know how to use a pistol and she would, impress that upon me too but how are you going to learn if you don't go out and, and right do it? you got to jump in the deep end sometimes absolutely so <laughs> anyway i after i got out of the uh out of boot camp i convinced her to go and do a uh go and do a ladies only firearms training course and women i, I will absolutely recommend that uh and guys to to your to your women recommend having them go and do a don't try to train course. them yourself no because you know what the thing is is sometimes you're a little bit too close and yeah. you you will get irritated by little things, or you will irritate them with little things. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, guys, if you haven't had a whole lot of training, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you might legitimately. I've seen this happen a lot of times. People train the wrong thing to the wrong person. You know, like there's a lot of things. Not not everybody's a good teacher. No. And so as they're training somebody something, they're maybe leaving out details that are important that person to process. And so that's why in firearms, everything's very procedural. Well, I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to a gun range and seen a guy teaching a girl how to shoot. And he is teaching her so many wrong things. It's like, dude, yeah. you don't know how to shoot. Right. You should not be teaching anybody. You should be going and getting a class yourself. Yeah. But anyway, so um, she did pretty well in the course. And then she finally, like, okay, I, I'm okay with getting a gun now. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just kind of skyrocketed from there getting, uh, more guns and uh, I actually got my first AR and um, it was a build job and um, like I had I had gotten it from somebody who had, had built it and so I didn't have uh, a manual or anything for it and so I wound up getting a, a book um, called The Black Rifle and I should have written down who the author was but it's, <laughs> it's a really good book uh, goes into all of the actual functions of the firearm 
um, all of the parts and pieces. And it even talks about the evolution of the firearm from when uh, it was originally the AR-10, uh, designed by Eugene Stoner in the 1950s, all the way through the modern variants, like the, the, the modern aftermarket that have done so many different things to the gun. And I'm sure that there's probably even more up-to-date version from the one I got back in the day. But it, being able to look at that engineering evolution of that gun made me so incredibly fascinated with it. Um, it kind of got yep. you, from what I understand, it really kind of got you interested, not just specifically like the AR platform or anything like that, but it, it kind of struck this like the history of firearms is kind of a, a unique understanding where they started from and where they ended up at. Oh, absolutely. You know. I'll just, just engineering of it in general, looking all the way back to like the early Chinese cannons where it was just packing in that black powder into a sheet of bamboo and packing some arrows on top of it and then yeah. just launching it at something all the way up into, you know, you've got modern precision rifles that are able to do incredible things or even beyond that you've got, um, like you've got the, the rail guns. That's yeah. not even an explosive powder anymore. You're using electromagnetism to fire this projectile. Just so to get speed. <laughs> oh yeah. Man, I, I, I love it. It's just, it's an absolutely fascinating subject, and anybody who's really engineered and interested in engineering can look at firearms and say, "Okay, this is a fascinating subject." Right. Even if you're morally opposed to guns, you can still look at it and say, "Hey, so, the engineering behind this is fascinating." So, would it be fair to say that you weren't necessarily influenced by um, by games, uh, pop culture, movies, as far as your perception of firearms? That you came from more of an educated background when you got introduced to it. Well, so I would say that it, it was a bit more of like, okay, I, I believe that a firearm will help me to defend myself and defend my home and family. Yeah. And so I wanted one from that, from that point. But really I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to have a whole bunch of guns. <laughs> like, right. I, I wasn't that kind of a mindset. I'm like, I want to have a gun around the house to and learn know, about to, to it and, and, and get good at it. Yeah. But, and it was something that as I, as I started shooting more and I started liking shooting more, um, that got me into getting more guns and, then it was, yeah, reading that book and looking at my own AR, and I wound up rebuilding it a whole bunch of times. I wound up um, wound up helping friends to, to build rifles and, you know, built a few of my own. And it's so much fun to, to get involved in that. And I think this piece of it, too, like there's something intrinsic about the, the metallurgy. And something about well, the, you know, the engineering of the actual parts themselves. Absolutely. Like, like now, now I'm to a point where I would absolutely love to to design my own, sure. my own firearms. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a growing, that's a, a been a growing interest, you know, it mm -hmm. got from that point of, okay, let me just understand how it works to, okay, now I want to design my own. Well, and, and there's a lot of, of and right in between, between there to, to be clear. And part of why I want to bring this up was because we're trying to get, I really wanted people to understand that when we go into this second amendment issue and the second part of the show is I, I want them to understand where we're coming from the experience that we have with firearms. You're coming from a background of, You'd barely been around them. You got introduced. I introduced you to handguns prior to entering the, the Navy. Then you picked up interest in it on your own. And yeah. you and took your wife with you to do training. Absolutely. That you paid for out of pocket. The military was oh, not yeah. front, foot in the bill. No. But no, I, got, I did. A, I've done well over 60 hours of uh, of training with a qualified instructor. Professionals. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that was so, on and I, did that, I did that on my own. Yeah. I went out and... I found good instructors that were able to, to teach me different things. And I've pursued further training with instructors to go more in depth and to do, uh, to develop more of a skill set. But no, the military didn't really, didn't 
pay for any of that. There, there was a to little a bit point. that I got <laughs> that I got from the military outside of boot camp, which was when I went into the Navy marksmanship team. Yeah. And so that was actually, I had a, another guy in the Navy who had been trying to get me to go out for the team for a number of years. And, um, I really didn't do it because it was all static shooting and it was ranged shooting. And I hadn't really done a whole lot of ranged shooting. And I'm like, you know what? I, yeah. Okay. You can shoot something from 300 plus yards away, but I mean, I really like shooting doing, move. <laughs> I, yeah. I like doing shooting and moving. And I like doing, uh, action drills and like multiple target drills and things like that. Those are the things that I, I really enjoy. Like, I don't, I don't want to be sitting there static on the range, just taking a shot every few seconds. And a lot of people may not understand this, but there's kind of two different worlds within the firearms. There's the sportsman style of shooting, which is bench rest shooting, shooting long distance, more precision based, more um, not really based on the functionality of the weapon as much as the functionality of the ballistics. Absolutely. Fair to say. And then you have a combative side. And the combative side is how would you employ these particular you know objects, <laughs> these flying rocks at high speed? How do you employ those in a situation that's more relative to combat? Well, yeah. How do you move around? How do you uh, discern targets? How do you, you know, fire and hit multiple targets, you know, it's, and it's doing all, so safely too. also understanding absolutely. where you're no, at. You can be very, you can be disqualified very quick if you do something unsafe when mm -hmm. you're going and doing those, uh, those kind of matches. Yeah. But, uh, eventually I, he kind of convinced me with, look, you will get two weeks off to go up to Quantico, Virginia and to shoot guns. Why would, Why would you, you not do, do that, that just for the heck of You're, you're going to be get. it's not you even your vacation. On. You're getting paid yeah. the entire time. Go up there and do it. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I should have been doing this years ago. <laughs> so now I did finally go up there and uh, I did training and I enjoyed it a whole lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. And part of it was because I, I am a pretty accurate shooter. And so I was pretty good at it. I actually won best new shooter in the pistol category that year. Um, I might have won best new shooter in the rifle category. After day one, I had the highest score, but I got heat exhaustion on day one. So <laughs> I had to sit out day two. Good old mother nature oh, stepping yeah. in. Well, you know, you're out there in the middle of May and you're under the beating sun and they've got these shooting jackets that you've got to wear on the rifle mm -hmm. range. You don't have to, but it makes you more competitive if you do. Um, and I hate them. I hate them so much because because of how hot they are, and because and because of what they did to expensive. you, <laughs> and because of what they did to me. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but no, I, I did pretty well. But it was it was so much fun doing it from from that standpoint. And that was the first time I'd ever shot anything longer than a hundred yards. Yeah. And I actually went out. We had a a, a six hundred yard match. And out of the 200 possible points in the 600-yard match, I got 186. That's and pretty solid. I felt pretty good about that. And actually, they had a 1,000-yard match that if you got better than 175 on the 600-yard match, you qualified to, to do the 1,000-yard match. I'm like, sweet, let's do that. <laughs> why not? But uh, <laughs> Well, the, the why not was because you needed a rifle that was... Able to reach yeah, out there. Yeah, <laughs> able to reach that. Well, what were you shooting? Were you shooting military-only we rifles? So we were or? shooting um, M16... Uh, variants like obviously there there are certain things so this is cmp matches civilian marksmanship program matches and so there are different uh there are different modifications that you're allowed to make to the rifle but it still has to be pretty similar to that are these issued style. weapons or no, are these these no. are personal yeah these okay. are personal weapons and my my rifle was borrowed from the guy who got me to go out there <laughs> nice. i used my own handgun but i was borrowing the rifle hey, you put um, it to good use well yeah i mean my rifle wasn't designed <laughs> for shooting out that far yeah but anyway, now, were you shooting 556 five, yeah point? we were shooting okay. 77 grain 556 five, okay so um which 
you know, that'll, you know, wouldn't want to shoot 55 grain out of 600 yards. But no, I was actually curious as far as if people were switching over to a 308 caliber. So when you got to the thousand, so you can shoot all, there are, there are different guns that you're allowed to use uh-huh. in that match. Most of the people use, um, use the, uh, the five, five, six, they're using the M16. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that, uh, you can use, um, an M1. Okay. Because I know that guys were using M1s for the uh, thousand yard matches. Sure. And so no, they're running. They're running some thirty caliber. Yeah. Rifles. But and but when you got to the the thousand yard match, you had to be running a, a thirty caliber rifle. Uh, so yeah. you had to. So I would have had to have borrowed a rifle from somebody else, and you just weren't. You didn't have an experience with it. The only it people. The only people so who had well. rifles that were able to to go out that far were shooting in the match. So nobody could lend me a rifle. Yeah. So, and, and let's be honest, a thousand yards for people that have not shot before is is kind of the holy grail of marksmanship because you can have a great gun. You can have um, all the equipment that you need, and you have a rifle that's capable of it. But it really comes down to use the shooter, understanding the ballistics, understanding you know what you're dealing with with wind down range at variable distances, and the trigger control and sight picture, sight alignment. Like it, it is too, it's down. It's it's kind of like you know the the Indy car Formula One drivers. Oh, there's there's, the there's cutting so edge. much of a change just from 100 yards to 300 yards. Yeah, um, in understanding, like the, the wind affects it a lot more. Yeah. And 300 yards than 100 yards. Um, and coming from a guy who'd only shot at 100 yards, going to 300 yards, there there was there was quite a difference there, a noticeable difference. Going out to 600 yards, there was a lot of a difference. Um, but that was a reason why they had a qualifier. You had to get at least 175 on that uh, on that 600-yard match in order to qualify to be in the 1,000-yard. Because they didn't want somebody like just shooting around, not even hitting their own target. <laughs> hitting hurting gopher piles out there. Yeah, I mean, the, it's... and, and that's. It does happen, and it's frustrating. But you know, there there are times where you have errant rounds on your target from some other shooter that's yeah. shooting at the wrong target. <laughs> uh, it's it's frustrating, but it happens. And well, some of the competitions went went really well. You ended up you know receiving prizes. Yep, you ended up you know doing very well with it. And so I think that kind of stuck with you even after your military career. Oh yeah, I went to I went to nationals. Um, you know that year, um, I've continued to i've continued to do shooting and training and things like that it was it was a lot of fun yeah um and i would now that i'm medically retired i would still love to go out and i'd love to do a lot more of that um family life obviously comes first and ammo prices oh gosh ammo (laughs) prices right now yeah so obnoxious well you know my background is as far as firearms went when i was a kid I, i grew up around them they were in the house uh it wasn't you know, faux pas by any stretch of the imagination, but it also wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't, you know, everyday life. But when I was a Boy Scouts, I did the same thing. I went and shot 22 long rifle. I went and shot shotgun doing skeet shooting with the Boy Scouts. Um, and then I was exposed a lot more to, I had some friends and family that, you know, would go out and do hunting trips and things. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, there's something more to it that I've not really experienced. So I've, I've been out squirrel hunting with rifles at that point I'd, and shotguns, um, been out and, and, you know, just, just plinking, having fun, that kind of thing, but nothing serious. No, no real training other than you know, a whole lot of good mentors being like, safety's the biggest deal. <laughs> You've got to, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's how you safely download the weapon, those types of things. Um, and so, I, but I never shot a pistol until I decided I wanted to become a police officer. You know, right when I got out of high school, I went to become a firefighter and then realized after a few years of chasing that that uh, maybe, maybe there's um, a need in the, <laughs> the police uh, because I'm, I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. I want a lot to do, and I don't like sitting around the firehouse and having nothing to do but clean. 
So oh, hey, I, I wanted to be a cop before I joined the military, but they yeah. wanted somebody who had either four years of military experience or they wanted somebody who had a four-year degree. And I didn't have either of those. So <laughs> I, and maybe I could have moved somewhere, but my, my local um, my local precinct was the ones that were mandating that. So yeah, I, 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 was, I was looking to go in that route too. Yeah. So I got a job with the police department initially as a dispatcher just to kind of, you know, get used to the job, you know, understand it and then see if it was even an option for me to become a police officer. Uh, it was almost by mistake because I found out the day I went in to take the dispatching test was the same day that they were doing the law enforcement test. And they didn't know what I was there for because I had applied for both. So they <laughs> stuck me with the dispatch test uh, and I got the job unbeknownst to me. I, I probably could have pursued getting the law enforcement stuff done then. But so I transferred over after about a year and a half and became a police, a police officer, went to, you know, all the basic training that you do, uh, you know, it's six months. It's a little bit longer than what you deal with with the military, but it's covering way more legal matters. It's it's kind of a school and, you know, basic combined yeah, and, and then for those of you who don't know, A school is is the Navy's occupational training. So you go through boot camp, and then you and that's everybody goes through generic boot camp and learns all the same things. And then you go to A school, which is your specialty school. So like I was a nuclear electrician, I went to electrical school to learn how to be an electrician. And then because I was more specialized than that, I went to nuclear power school and nuclear prototype. After that. Most people go to the fleet after A school. But, yeah, anyway, so you were yeah. saying. So, you know, my, my I had kind of that basic level. Our firearms training was 160-ish hours, something like that. I, I'd have to go look again. But uh, so firearms were a pretty big part of it, and you were learning three-gun. So, I mean, you're learning pistol first because that's your defensive weapon. But then you also learn, you know, patrol rifle and shotgun. You probably shot more than two rounds with a shotgun, didn't you? Oh, way more. <laughs> yeah, no. We, they, so they, they do give you the shotgun in the Navy. Yeah. But, they have you hip fire two rounds. Wow. Yeah, because no, they don't want awful. you to bruise your shoulder before Pretty they have much. you drop it. <laughs> well, you know, there there are guys my size out there that would have no problem with right. it. But then you also have those like hundred and twelve pound girls that yeah. they're gonna get knocked over unless somebody's supporting them. So Yeah, and, and it's also, you know, somebody's not familiar with shooting from the shoulder anyways, trying to teach to get the you know, the right but you know Well, and they could do that. All the other branches do, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's less since of a it's not of as much of Navy. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so I kind of uh, I kind of just took the basic training through the you know the police academy, and that's when I introduced you to you know to pistols and stuff. But it was more of a um, it more just was a part of what you had to do to be a cop. It wasn't still to that point of being a fanatic about it at all, you know. And, and I don't think I would ever say I became a fanatic, but I really started zoning in on like, hey, this is part of my skill set that I use every day. I, I pull my you know patrol rifle out probably once every two weeks to go on a, something really bad. Um, my pistol's out of my holster almost on a daily basis, whether it's checking empty, empty building, doing a felony car stop. So I'm like, I, 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 was, I shot really, really well in the academy. I was the first person in my academy class to shoot what they call a possible, which is 100% everything on target, no mistakes. So I was the first person. There was many that <laughs> followed, obviously. But I was personally like, oh, wow, I, I didn't think I'd be that good with the pistol because I'd never shot one. But... No, oh, I understand. Like, you, like, like, like people I told do you, well second, when they don't know already. Well, the second, the second time that I had shot a pistol was there in boot camp. Yeah, and I qualified marksman, which is wonderful because the less you know when you go in, the better because the training can really pull no, you through. Sorry, you know. wrong, I, 
I qualified sharpshooter. There's marksman, and uh-huh. then there's sharpshooter, and then there's expert. Okay. So sharpshooter is that second tier. I got that one. Gotcha. So, you know, I got my marksmanship ribbon when I was in the police academy. But then I decided, hey, I want to focus a little bit more, have have some coursework specifically to the job that I'm doing. And so I did some stuff like solar, solo officer engagement tactics, which is if I'm going responding to a mass shooting of some sort, how do I engage that that issue by myself? Because the idea is I'm not going to, like back in the days when Columbine happened, the reason why it was so bad was because the training at the time was to wait for SWAT to show up. Don't put yourself in that much danger. Wait for SWAT to show up. In the meantime, there's people being hurt. So the tactics have changed over the years. It's like you, whoever's there, go. Don't wait for a team. Try to communicate with everybody. Let them know where you're at and where you're going. But you need to go address the gunfire, period. That's your job. So no, Absolutely. There's, there's uh, <clears throat> a, a brilliant instructor, uh, Daniel Shaw. Yeah. Um, anyway, he uh, did a podcast. Uh, I think he still does, but it's changed names a couple of times. Um, but anyway, he did a podcast, he did an interview with a uh, gentleman who's an Air Force um, MP, who he was, there was a VA shooting yeah. uh, at a veterans hospital there on base, and he was called out there, and he shot the, the ass- attacker, the, the active shooter, from 75 yards away with an M9. Yeah, that's a heck of a shot oh, with yeah. a nine millimeter. Oh, yeah. So, you know, and that's, again, that goes back to... When you're in those critical situations, I started learning real quick. You go back to your training, and so high quality training for gun ownership is goes hand in hand with safety. Oh yeah, so. and, but the thing is, is like as, as what you were talking about, how many more people would have died if he would have had if he would have just waited yeah. for SWAT to show up? Yeah, and instead he was able to to stop it with with what happened there. Yeah, and you know a lot of that training led into helping other people learn about firearms, helping other people understand CCW laws, understand what they should and shouldn't do when they're interacting with law enforcement. Because if you're that if you're that Second Amendment believer and you're carrying a firearm. And you and a situation's happening around you. Number one, be a really good witness and get to a safe place. But number two, if you have an opportunity to engage and stop the threat, you also need to understand what's going to happen if a cop walks in the room at the same time you're trying to deal with the situation he's trying to get to. You might become the target of his issues. Oh, 100%. so you you absolutely need to have some training and some understanding as far as <clears throat> what are you legally able to do and how are you supposed to interact with law enforcement in those situations. And so, a good quality instructor will talk to you about that stuff. Sure. We'll talk to you about. Um, I, so I, I had an instructor again, it was Daniel Shaw, but anyway, uh, he talked to me about stuff called that he called good guy language. Mm-hmm. And so the ways that you present yourself to the people around you, mm-hmm. the way that you present yourself to the cops that might show up, the way that you, uh, address somebody who might, who, who, to tell them to call the cops and to tell them about yourself mm-hmm. that yes, I, I have this person at gunpoint or I, I've been doing this. I am not the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Give them a description of what I'm wearing and what I look like so that they don't come in guns blazing. Because mm-hmm. as soon as they show up and they're able to take care of the, the situation, I will absolutely put my gun down. Yep. Put it on the ground, raise my hands over my head. Like, I will not be Cuff a threat to Cuff me up, officers. drag me out of there if you got to. Absolutely. <laughs> Do whatever you need to. I want you guys to focus on the bad guy, and I don't want to be a part of stopping that process. And I don't want to get shot in the process. Correct. <clears throat> So, so, so was that uh, was that department sponsored? Did you do that? Yeah, on your own? that was I, you know put in for the training. Uh, you basically, fill you know fill out a form, and it goes to the chief, and the chief looks at your responsibilities and decides whether or not it falls within your purview, and if they have the budget for the training. I was looking to be with a department that really focused on the training. They wanted us to go get as much as we wanted, and I was a training whore. I absolutely wanted to sign up for everything that I could. I made sure that I had a stack of disapproved trainings every year because I wanted to know, I wanted them to know that I constantly wanted to go to school. I constantly wanted to learn. 
uh, you know, eventually became an accident reconstructionist, a CPR instructor, an EVOC course instructor, a laser radar instructor, uh, an FTO, a field training officer. I started doing everything I possibly could. I wanted to be the best cop, period. It wasn't about progressing up the chain of command. It wasn't about being anything super special. It was like, I want knowledge so that I can give it to others so that I have the ability to be the safest guy so that when we're going into a situation, we're all on the same team and you know you can trust me. You know, it's, it's kind of that camaraderie you're trying to build between your, your coworkers. So there's a concept that was uh, brought up. I want to say it was by Aristotle, um, but it might have been one, one of the other three great Greek philosophers. It's called Arete. And there's a little bit of a disagreement on, on the exact pronunciation of that, that word. <laughs> we won't argue but it. Essentially, it basically translates to the best possible form of a thing. Yeah. And so meaning like, so there you were trying to be the best possible officer. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, we can talk about it in another podcast, a little bit about the, that philosophy, but that's something that I, I try to look at being the best possible form of a thing. You don't have to be the best. You, you don't have to be Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky. No. Like you don't have to be Jerry Michalik if you're in, if you're a fan <laughs> of the, uh, of, of the shooting uh, community. Um, but you want to be the best you that you possibly can be. Absolutely. And so, and that's, and that falls into that. Like, you know, there, there might be some hot star cop that could have been absolutely better than you ever could have been, yeah. but you were the best that you could possibly. Exactly. Be. And he's not my competition. He's my partner. Right. You know, absolutely. so I want to see people be successful, but I also want to, I want to achieve everything I possibly can. Not even for a gratification. It's not to wear an award. I didn't put extra little ribbons on my uniform. I wore the same uniform everybody else did. I did the same job everybody else did, and I did not treat myself like I was something special. I put the extra ribbons on my uniform. <laughs> that's because of the military? That's important. Yeah. <laughs> In law enforcement, it's just another target on your chest. <laughs> no, but that, that's one of the things that I love about the shooting community. Gosh, you will never find a community where more people are are helpful and yeah. welcoming. Yeah. Like you go out to you go out to a competition and your competitors, these people who are trying to beat you, they will tell you how to be better. They will, and, and if you get better than them and you shoot better than them and you edge them out for prizes or for scores and stuff, very, they're going to pat very, you on the back. Very few of them will get mad at you about it. Yeah. Yeah. They'll pat you on the back. They'll, they'll congratulate you and they'll come away with a silt of satisfaction knowing that their tips helped you to get there. Yeah. They were part of your journey. Absolutely. Because we're all kind of on a journey. <laughs> but, Absolutely. You know, so. And, and, and yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a fantastic community and the, the, most of them have the idea and the mindset that. Even though, yes, you know, there are prizes and things at stake, my score is not against your score. My score is against my previous scores. Yeah. I am trying to be better than I was before. And nothing frustrates you more than your own score and your own performance. The guy next to you, it doesn't make you upset that he did well. Oh, gosh, it's I can't <laughs> tell you. Like I said, I won, I won best new shooter that year mm -hmm. that I went out um, that first year with the Navy marksmanship team. And some of those last matches, like... There, there are multiple courses of fire, and the first two courses of fire, uh, or sorry, the, the, the first course of fire versus the, the second two courses of fire. The second two courses of fire just kept getting better and better and better. And the, But the first course of fire is at 50 yards yeah, with the pistol. That's tough. And it is tough. And I kept, I kept fluctuating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'd be better. Sometimes I'd be worse. Sometimes I'd be way worse. And it was so frustrating because my, 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 uh, the 25-yard uh, firing courses i was doing better every single time right and yeah I, I came away i i did i won prizes that year you know i was able to to be the best new shooter but 
it was still frustrating to me knowing that I wasn't doing my best. I wasn't yeah. being well, able knowing to that you can hit the target and you can do it at twenty five makes you believe you should be able to easily do fifty. If no, you no, have no, the that mechanics. wasn't that wasn't the issue. The issue was that I was hitting it at, at fifty. Yeah, I had been hitting it at fifty. And then, especially those last few matches, I was just not doing putting up those same scores on the yeah. fifty line that I was at the twenty five line. Yeah. And even though my, my scores at the twenty five line were more than making up for my deficiencies at the fifty, if I was able to ma- even just maintain those the, those fifty scores, then that would have just shot my my scores up so much higher. Yeah. Well, you know, Red, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your your history on that, and I think the message I want people to understand as we go into this talk about the second amendment is that we're coming from the background of, of being supportive of it, but we're not fanatics. We're more concerned about our personal performances, our safety and what we're able to, to contribute either to society and even to just our families and the people that were there around us. So I think me and you were both always been kind of messengers of trying to encourage other people to get involved, but never pushed them, never said, Hey, you have to own a gun. You know, it's, it's not, we're not trying to shove things down people's throat. I am a huge proponent of freedom. Yeah, and so I I support people's choices to do what they want to do. My, I very much live by the philosophy. I believe that everyone should have the ability to do whatever they want to do, as long as it does not infringe upon infringe upon the rights and freedoms of others. Absolutely. So yeah, when it comes to owning a gun, if you don't want to own a gun, don't own a gun. I I, I might think that you're making the wrong decision, but it doesn't. It's not forcing you to do anything, and I don't want to force you to do anything. So don't force me to do anything. Yeah, I think that's a great point to cut it. We're going to just refill our glasses and come back for the second part. We're going to dive into that Second Amendment. We're going to try to understand some history around it. Well, welcome back from break. We decided to get a little food in our bellies as we're about to dive into a big subject. We figured it'd be good to have a little food on board because we're going to have our second whiskey of the day, aren't we? Absolutely. All right. Now, this one was completely unknown to me until I got it as a gift. Uh, unknown to me, too. Yeah. And it's got a really cool bottle. I think the bottle is kind of what sells it to me. Uh, it's just a kind of a, what would you even call this? I mean, it's not like a standard, you know, it's not like a wine bottle. It's it's a very squared off Tall rectangular bottle. No, it reminds me a lot of a lot of classic bourbon bottles. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It's 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 squared off, rectangular. Yeah. Um, but so that's one of the great things about whiskeys. You get them in all different shapes and sizes. That's right. This one's very unique. It's called Muckley Muck, and it's a single grain Scotch whiskey, uh, and it's twenty four years aged at the time of oh, purchase. Wow. So. I couldn't even tell you how old it really is because I doubt this even has a date. Li- well, it might have a date label of bottling, but. Uh, Anyways, it's good stuff, and I figured, you know what? Why not crack this out a little bit, have some a little bit different flavor here for the second half? Wow, 24 years. That's it's very rich and <laughs> compelling. I love scotch. Scotchy, scotchy, scotch. Yeah, Abrams is flexing on all of you cheap whiskey drinkers right now. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that cheap whiskey here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't my intent to uh, to flex on anyone, but, you know, we just, we have what we have, and I, I happen to have a couple of good whiskeys that uh, are sitting around in uh, need of use. Well, and I don't drink cheap whiskeys. I drink inexpensive whiskeys. Okay, inexpensive, not cheap. Not right. Poor yeah. quality, no. No. High quality, good price. Right. You don't <laughs> have to spend tons of money to get a good whiskey. No, no. 
and and we're not even here for the whiskey. We're really here for the conversation. Absolutely. So I'm not just a bonus. Exactly. Um, all right. So we're diving into the Second Amendment, and we really want to kind of get to the history of it because I think a lot of times this is the common theme I hear when I when I talk to somebody who is not in support of the Second Amendment. They say that the Second Amendment is outdated and that it's very misunderstood. Those are the two common themes. If you just Google search right now and you look for articles from within the last 10 years here in the United States, you'll see that there's a lot of confusion about the interpretation of the Second Amendment. I personally don't think that's the case. Um, I and never thought that was the case. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was a little, like, it's it's not ambiguous. It's very specific. So... Um, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts when you think of the Second Amendment? Do you think have you have you when you were growing up? Did you think that was relevant for somebody to say that it's it's ambiguous? No, I, I never thought it was ambiguous. So, the first time I ever really got into the Second Amendment was I remember my eighth grade history class, yeah. and and I was the rare kid that really enjoyed history. I, I just I've always I've always appreciated stories. And that's all history is. It's one big story. And I, I appreciate it. I, I don't like the history teachers that focus so much in on specific dates. I like more study of history as a cause and effect kind of thing. This happened, so this happened. And that caused this, and this caused that. And so on and so forth. It helps you to understand things a whole lot better. Um, and so when we were studying the, the Second Amendment, we were really studying the Constitution. It was right after looking at the, the American Revolution. And so, of course, the first battles of the American Revolution, the first official battles of the American Revolution, there's, there are other points of debate and people talking about unofficial starts of the American Revolution. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go all into that. But the first official start of the, uh, the official start of the American Revolution was the British invasion at Lexington and Concord. Mm-hmm. So the British were coming because they had heard about the amass of not just firearms in at Concord, but they had amassed cannons and mortars. And so they were... And they were training troops. Yes, they were. So this was, this was a concern to the British because tensions had been rising and there had been several uh, other actions that had been taken through in the lead up of the, the several years leading up to the, uh, the revolution. So they, they marched. And they stopped by uh, Lexington first, and that's where they had the shot heard around the world, where the uh, the militia there did not want to give up their firearms to the British. And they, they refused flat out, and the British told them, like, no, you're going to give up your guns, you're going to give up your powder, you're going to give up everything. And there was a standoff, and nobody knows who shot first, but it caused... The, uh, it caught, it sparked the start of the American Revolution because those uh, citizens of Lexington did not take the British showing up lightly, and they fought, and well, they and lost. It, and there was something that led up to that point. What had happened was there was a small militia, which which back in the day militias were really just kind of it was too expensive to own a firearm by every person. You know, not everybody had the uh, had the affluence to have one, and so they would kind of collect them, and they'd say, hey, you know, we're going to be in charge. These groups of people are going to be in charge of protecting the community if something bad were to happen. You know, you have some, you know, crime wave sweep through. You have some horrible disaster. These, these are going to be the people that you're going to call on. And so there was some militiamen that had been sitting around, and uh, the Redcoats came through, and this was prior to Lexington and Concordia, and caught them with their weapons and basically just started shooting them up. These are professional soldiers against basically 
completely non-trained soldiers and and just rooted the day and sent them packing and uh, confiscated some of their weapons. And so the British knew that they were starting to have this issue arise, and that's when we you know we led into Lexington, the Lexington Concordia issue. Lexington Concord. Concord. Oh, my. That's the whiskey. Yeah. I'm going to blame the whiskey on that one. Well, and, and so I actually looked up, because we had this conversation um, a few days ago, but I actually looked that up, um, looking for evidence that the the firearms were not ownable or not were too expensive for for everyone mm-hmm. and i actually found some conflicting things on that i found a lot of a lot of quotes of people talking about uh firearm use since infancy back okay. in, in that period of time um now definitely once you got into um bigger arms like cannons like mortars things like that those definitely cost a lot more those definitely were a lot more difficult to produce um and not everybody had the knowledge of how to use them. Uh, I think a lot of the... Well, here's a real quick question that I have. Was there any preclusion to ownership of that by the British? Were they restricting ownership? So... Because I I've, I've gone through and I hadn't really seen anything where they were specifically stating you cannot so own firearms or you see, cannot I didn't own see anything, cannons. I didn't or, see anything either. Right. But there was, there was some... Uh, conflict regarding the cannons that were at <laughs> at uh, Concord because the British thought that they were British cannons. Right. So and, they thought they'd been confiscated. Right. And th- there there had been a lot of confiscation. There had been a lot of uh, of harrowing of, of supply Some British versions. supply routes and stuff like that. And there were there were people that were taking things from the British and yeah. well uh, there was boats that were at that point being attacked as well, right? There was British supply boats that merchant ships that had been, you know, basically supplies had been taken from no, the British that, army. That that happened. Um, there might have been. Yeah, I, I know that there was a lot of that later on, right? And especially leading up to the War of eighteen twelve. But um, yeah, I, I know that. I know that there there was a deep suspicion that the artillery that was at Concord was British military artillery that had been stolen. And whether or not it was, I'm not entirely sure. I have seen sources that say that it was and sources that say that it wasn't. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. But uh, at the same time, I know that there were, especially after the war, uh, the French and Indian War, there were a lot of resources that had been given out to the, the colonists. That's what I was going to hit at. Like by the British military because they were yeah. fighting for the British military. And a lot of times those colonists just took that stuff and went home with it. Like, hey, yeah. this is this is uh, compensation for coming out here and risking my life for you guys. Um, <laughs> I think I'll just take this and go home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so there was there was uh, some controversy there about whether or not that that was the maybe British maybe, artillery, yeah. and especially because of the hostilities that had been had been uh, escalating, they didn't want them to have military grade weapons. They didn't, and the muskets at the time. Uh, Americans actually had a lot of times better muskets than the British did. Um, you, you saw the uh, the production of the Kentucky and uh, Pennsylvania rifles, and so the at the time most the muskets were smooth bore, and I, I won't bore people too much on this. Uh, yeah, pun intended. Yeah, uh, anyway, but <laughs> there was a smooth tube that the bullet flew through, right, which meant they, that they, it didn't get any special rotation to it. Right, it was not very accurate. Whereas a rifle has these grooves in a spinning in a spiral pattern. That turns the bullet. And so think about it like, you know, when a quarterback throws a football, they want to get that good spin on there, and that allows it to be a lot more accurate and go exactly where they want it to. The same thing is true. It controls better through the air. It's more consistent through the air. Absolutely. And and it's the same thing with a bullet. So um, 
So a lot of Americans, and now this is not every American, not by any stretch of the imagination, no. but, but there it was were Americans there. that had better quality weapons than what the British did. Now, the artillery was a lot more expensive. It was not something that everybody could afford. So getting your hands on some artillery, that was definitely a lot more of a So here's of, a gun history a, question for you. I'm going to test you. This is quiz time. Did they have percussion cap, or was this only flintlock that flint we lock. Okay, so there was no percussion cap stuff at that flint point. Lo- the, the percussion cap was developed in the 1800s. Okay, so it was well after this period. Yes. Okay. So this is all flintlock, um, and you, of course, had some... Um, most of the cannons were, were done by... Uh, a flit, lit by a match, was what they would call it. It was essentially a long fuse right. that would be wound around a, uh, a pole. And so it was it was a similar method of firing you just had this open spot where you had the, the pow- powder exposed, uh, exposed to the air. yeah exposed powder and then you would just take that that match and you would light that to the powder and that would launch the yeah. cannon and some people may not think that that part of the conversation we just had is very critical but i think it is because that's part of the question everybody always comes up with was hey during the revolutionary period during the the construction of the constitution you know the, the firearms were completely different than they are nowadays and it's like Okay, well, let's understand what they really were, and then we can have that debate later, but that's why I keep asking these questions. Oh, and I, I've got a lot of information when it comes to evolution of firearms, and we yeah. can talk about that <laughs> later. But essentially, so the, the British uh, had thoroughly, thoroughly defeated the uh, colonists at Lexington and marched onto Concord. Well, the, the colonists at Concord had had a lot more time to prepare, right. and they were a little bit more heavily armed. And there were several of the... Uh, the militia members there at Lexington that retreated to Concord and they made a second stand there at Concord and they handily defeated the British there at Concord, turned him around, sent him back home. Uh, and then actually a little bit of, of a subvert, but I love this story. So the, uh, the British were coming back after being turned around at Concord and they were pissed as I'm sure anyone could imagine. You are this, the, the you're the a regular superior, army. Well, not just a regular army, but you are the superior fighting force of the entire world at that time. You are right. the great army and you go and you go to handle a bunch of, of townspeople and you get your asses handed to you and you're turning around and you're, you're, there's some embarrassment because yeah. I don't want to be the general that goes and sends a letter back off to King George saying, by the way, we, we got whooped by about 200 uh, townspeople. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good feeling. Like, it's you're just, losing your job over that. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly how many people were at Concord. I know that there were about 800 British that were retreating mm-hmm. afterwards. But as they're, as they're coming back, about 800 British troops, well, as, as I said before, they're, they're noticeably, they're understandably uh, irritated. And so they're taking pot shots at, at colonists that are along the road, at, at houses. Um, they're going in and they're, they're stealing things from houses. And so well, and at that time, the British troops had, there was already an understanding. Everybody knew if the British troops came through and they decided to take up quarters in your home, they're going to do that. And that's exactly why they had the Third Amendment. Which I'm only mentioning it because, again, it, it turns the amendments into a story. They're oh. not just you have a First Amendment right to free speech, a Second Amendment right to, you know, firearms, a Third Amendment right to, you know, basically keep military separate from the people. But. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, anyway, so they were the word got out and people were sending word up ahead down the road. Hey, get out, get out. If you if your houses are by the road, go stay with somebody else. Um, the, the British are coming through and they're on the war path. Right. Well, there was, there was a man, a personal hero of mine, just, just for this actions. I don't know much about it besides the story, but <laughs> he was an 80 year old man. That, that's, that's old for those times. Oh yeah. I mean, that's old now, but that was really old for back then. So, but he said, no, I'm not being 
driven off of my property. These British have, have picked on the wrong guy. <laughs> so he loaded up his musket. He loaded up his, actually, I think he had a rifle. But anyway, he loaded up whatever his firearm, firearm he had. Yeah. yeah. And he loaded up his two pistols and he strapped his sword onto his belt. And he went out into the road to face the British, 800 British by himself. And when they showed up, he took his rifle out and he shot one, killed him, dropped him in the road, pulled out his two pistols, dropped two more, then drew his sword and charged, and charged. the <laughs> remaining 797 British. Look, at 80 years old, if, if that situation's in front of me, I'm, why not? Oh, absolutely. Make, make a stand. So he wanted to be they remembered. shot him in the face. Mm-hmm. And then when they got up close to him, they stabbed him 13 times with bayonets and they bashed him over the skull with the butt of a rifle. They they mutilated him. Yeah. And then continued on marching. So some of the the neighbors, they heard the commotion and they came out and found old man Whitmore there bleeding in the street. Yeah. Trying to load his guns to get off more shots at the British as they were leaving. <laughs> this so, is why they say you're, you're not out of the fight until you're gone. Right. So well, what they did is they wound up taking him to like local doctor or something like that. And the doctor was like, no, he's dead. Like, I'm not even going to waste bandages on him. Right. And his family was, no, no. We got to try. Get him, get him, <laughs> get him fixed up. Even if he only lasts Make a couple more days, at least it lasts a little bit longer. He lasted for 18 more years. Wow. He died at the age of 98. That is impressive. Yeah. Taking a ball to the face. Yep. Bullet to the stabbed, face. Stabbed 13, 13 times, times with bayonets and then clubbed over the skull with the butt of a rifle. Okay. So if you're all wondering where the uh, American spirit comes from, there's a root. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Samuel Whitmore. And there's actually a memorial to him. Okay. That, that states that. Yeah. But, uh, Actually, I think it's so. Great. It was pretty clear that it was it was the people, yeah, absolutely, that were standing against the government. Absolutely. Okay. So, anyways, you had the whole, you had the the American Revolution, everything that happened, and I'm not going to tell the entire story of the American Revolution because, first of all, there are many people who can do it better, and we don't have that kind of time. But all of that had happened. You had had the British trying to take away arms. It all sparked from the British trying to take away arms from the colonists. Right. And so when you put in the Second Amendment that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, as the Second Amendment states. I understood that. And in eighth grade, to think, okay, so that means that we're supposed to be able to stand up against our own government. So that means that we're supposed to be able to have whatever it takes to stand up against our own government. Because that's, that's what... The colonists were doing. They were standing up against their own government, a tyrannical government. What were the first words of the Constitution? I can't remember. So we, we, uh, we the people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> like it's the idea that the government was the people. It was of the people, for the people, and by the people. Right. And so and every amendment to that Constitution falls back on that premise. And and I mean, we're kind of bela- we're we're belaboring this point, but I think it's because we're we're trying to be adamant about the fact that the history is pretty un ambiguous absolutely and that it's very specific that these amendments were to try to give rights back to the people that they felt were already there these were not rights that were just handed to them by the government they were god-given rights and keep in mind at this point even though this was the start of the american revolution that was not the goal at the time revolution was not the goal they were not trying to start their their own nation that happened on april 19th 
1775. America didn't declare her independence until uh, July 2nd of 1776. And now some of you are going to say, no, it was July 4th of 1776, and you're wrong. The 4th was the celebration. Well, the 4th wasn't the celebration. <laughs> the 4th was actually when they created the final draft of the Declaration of Independence. And signed off. So yeah. it was actually, no, the signatures, actually, the final signatures weren't put in place until September. Oh, you know what you're because right. Because there I were a lot of delegates that, that weren't present. That weren't pre- yeah, because it had, a lot of it had been done, it had to be done in secret, because the British were looking for what was happening. Well, and then it, you couldn't just jump on a plane and get up to, to D.C., or in this case, Philadelphia. Or even a and, train. Right. You're, you're going by <laughs> horseback or on foot. Right, so it would take days to get up there. And, and people had a lot of other things that they had to do. It wasn't like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go up there for the weekend. To are do. you accusing these representatives of being in the districts that they're from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that is blasphemy. And, and <laughs> they had jobs. Oh, so they actually had to keep running their farms. Right, okay. and their right. businesses and their law firms and all the other things. That oh, they okay, that's weird. Right. So <laughs> anyway. So um, we're, we're being facetious, but there's there, this ties so much to modern you know government. But anyway, let's, yeah. let's move on to the points here. <laughs> no, so, and, so yeah, but um, just, just to, to tie up the, the story of the uh, American... Uh, declaration was that yeah they they originally um, it was actually a gentleman I have a quote in here from him a little bit later on here um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Henry Lee and Richard Henry Lee was a representative from Virginia okay and he was the one who actually made the motion to to uh, separate from Great Britain okay so it was it's so up until that Lee point everybody had just kind of been uh, like what are we doing. Well, yeah, no, they were they were fighting against the British because they were fighting for their rights. They were fighting for freedom. They weren't fighting for freedom of as an independent nation. They, they were just fighting wanted more local control. They wanted to have more local control. They wanted to have representation in Parliament. They wanted the British to stop just doing whatever they wanted to them. Yeah, they said, "Look, we are we are British subjects. Like we have the right to to." The same be, rights we would have in Britain. Exactly. Like, and we, we shouldn't be treated as second-class citizens because we live so far away from the crown. Right. And so, yeah, it was in June of uh, 1776 that they that he put forth the Lee, Declar- uh, the Lee Resolution that uh, would have allowed us to separate from, from Great Britain. And it was debated and eventually voted upon, but Lee actually wasn't there at the time. So, again, Richard Henry, Henry Lee, we're not talking about... Uh, Generally, from the uh, from the Civil War, long, long before him. Uh, anyway, so he actually had to go home to take care of his wife. He got word that his wife was sick, so it was actually John Adams and Thomas Jefferson that took over from that point. John Adams was the man who seconded the motion, okay. and then Thomas Jefferson obviously wrote the Declaration of Independence, and uh, so it was finally agreed upon on July second. But they didn't like Jefferson's original uh, Declaration of Independence because it included slavery as one of the intolerable conditions that had been pushed upon them by the British and that was encouraged by King George because he made a lot of money off of the slave trade. Absolutely. And so anybody... Well, he was making specifically not just money off of it. He was making money from the colonies because he because King George was transporting and, and, and ran the services to get the slaves into the states. And so that's, you know, directly benefiting from the slavery. Absolutely. And... Thomas Jefferson, one who a lot of people get mad about, and we can go into slavery and the and the myths and and historical tragedy of slavery on another podcast. But yeah, anybody who wants to say Thomas Jefferson was was all about slavery, that that is one of the big arguments against it. And I've got a lot more. 
but again, not the subject of this podcast. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, yeah. So they were. It was. It was much, much later, long after the the Battle of Lexington, Concord, and long after they'd been fighting for quite a while that they decided to declare the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Um, the the Continental Army and the Continental Navy had both been formed prior to that. So, I don't quite remember the army. I know that they were first. Yeah. But the Navy, we celebrate our anniversary on October 13th okay. of 1775 was when the, the United States Navy was, was formed. And we, we go with that. And like I said, we, we weren't declaring our independence from, from Britain at that point. But we had formed a colonial Navy to oppose them because they were, they were using their Navy just as they, they were using their Army to oppress us. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, back to the main point of the podcast was that We'd gone through all of this to fight a tyrannical government, our own tyrannical government. So the idea was present in the minds of the founders that, hey, if we give the government too much power, we could have to fight against them again. So the idea was the, the, the point of the Second Amendment, the security of the free state that they were talking about was not just from outside threats, but from inside threats, from their own government being a threat so that they needed to be able to to fight against them. That was the entire point. And so when I see people talk about, oh, well, it's just personal defense, and it's just talking about uh, being able to hunt, like that's that's completely disingenuous. Like, it, all you have to do is have a basic knowledge of what happened in the American Revolution and a basic knowledge of the Constitution. And like I said, in eighth grade, that's the conclusion that I came to. And I have learned so much more since then my conclusion has not changed. Yeah. I, I think that there's, when you look at the constitution itself and it's just, it's, you talk about a militia in the constitution. It's, it's being clear that that's, that's a part of the security of the free state. But again, th that's all a precursor. And when we, when we had first sat and talked about this, it, it was kind of like a, a declaration, if you will, as far as to what this law, this amendment to the constitution is supposed to apply it's basically saying, in order for us to be able to keep a group of people that's able to fight the government, that's literally like you can almost slot it right in there. Well, in order was, for us to be our own clause. free state, yeah. And in order to be our own free state, we've got to have the ability to have militias. So the people, it goes specifically to the right of the people, not the right of the militia. The right of the people to keep and bear arms that's shall not be infringed. That's a very deliberate difference. There is. Why would they not just restate militia? I mean, let's, let's be honest about that. And let's look at the difference between... There is a modern conversation that's being had, but I want to be like this is this goes to the definition of the Second Amendment, which is infringed versus unrestricted. Well, actually, before you get that, I'm, one of the things I want to put uh, into people's minds is the fact that there, a lot of the modern conversation revolves around modern thinkers. Sure. So at least more modern than the Constitution, people look back to Supreme Court uh, rulings on the Second Amendment. People look to modern day philosophers for lack of a better word sure i mean um, it's, it's people who are shaping American society purpose. exactly and so i have a, a really great quote here from thomas jefferson okay so and this is a, a letter to william johnson in uh june of 1823 and he says on every occasion of constitutional interpretation let us carry ourselves back to the time when the constitution was adopted Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying to force what meant, what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, let us, or instead, let us conform to the pro probable one in which it was passed. And that's what 
what I'm, I'm trying to do in this conversation. I believe that's what you're trying to do in this conversation is that we're trying to discuss where it came from, the mindset of the people who wrote it and who passed it and not the modern interpretations and the modern ideas and philosophies regarding arms and armaments and, and rights to bear them. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I kind of want to hit on the definition. I, I don't even think I'll read the unrestricted because I think the definition of infringe, which is specifically in the second amendment is the only one that really matters. And, and here's the two definitions. There's a past tense verb, meaning actively break the terms of a law or an agreement, or this is the second version of it act so as to limit or undermine something or encroach upon it. I, again, the, the, there's no, there's nothing to me that seems unclear about the fact that the rights of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed, meaning you can't do anything that's going to act to limit or undermine it. Absolutely. So, you know, again, you were talking about like opining over these more modern views of the Second Amendment. And I just, I think it's disingenuous for us to, to just only look at it with a modern eye. And that's why we're going to do this history. That's Absolutely. why we're going to be a little more specific about what was happening, what led up and what changes have been made. And we're going to kind of break apart the, the Second Amendment to understand what a militia was. Um, I think that's kind of the beginning of it because, again, it's the beginning of the, of the amendment, but it's also the beginning of our country was militias that were not regular army. They were not. Uh, they weren't a standing army, and the idea was that we weren't going to have one. That we were going to have, you know, people that wanted to stand up themselves and protect our country. But well, it wasn't critical to to say we need to constantly have them in uniform, constantly trained. They're going to be professional soldiers that live in a separate class of lifestyle and that travel the world fighting. And and we just arm these people and they go out and just do it. Well, and that was one of the big fears of the founders at the time. Mm -hmm. If you read uh, any of the Federalist Papers, particularly Federalist Twenty Nine. Um, I believe also it was uh, James Madison wrote in one of the other ones. I want to say it was 46. 46, thank you. Yep. It was something <laughs> six. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, James Madison wrote in that, and that it was uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton who wrote Federalist 29. Both of them were talking about how a standing army was, was detrimental to the freedom of, of the people. They were very much afraid of a standing army being loyal only to the government, the government and not the body of the people. Exactly. And I think that we were, we've managed to find a good compromise in that, that we have an all volunteer force. Like, yes, the draft exists. We haven't used it in a very long time, but we have an, an all volunteer military now. And so these people come in and they have, they're not doing it because they have no other way of, of providing for themselves. Right. They're doing it because they feel that, that sense of duty to their nation. And, and let me ask you this question because this is part of the pushback I hear sometimes. You know this from experience. The military does not want to keep you for 30 years. No. No, they prefer no, to keep you don't. on for one enlistment and get, get rid of you. No, that's not true at all. Okay, well, that's my that's my perspective. <laughs> so, no, um, the military spends a lot of money training you. So, especially me, somebody who went through the nuclear program, um, anybody who went through a more involved program, the military wants to keep you. If you're good at your job, the military wants to keep you. Now they have, they have certain things in place to where you know if you don't make rank in a certain amount of time, they're not going to keep you. They're gonna they're gonna let you go because obviously you're not well, doing I mean, well there's, enough. There's that a it's standard worth it to keep them. Yeah, but you're not going to show up and just be a professional soldier and sit on your butt. No, it's like not, you're going to be the best what you do. You're out. But the thing is, the further you go up, the fewer slots there are available for you. Right. So that's one thing. Mil rank advancement in the military is based off of what's available. That's, they have quotas every time that there's um, an advancement period. And, you know, you might be like an absolutely stellar 
sailor, soldier, marine, whichever branch you're in, but you could be absolutely like on top of your game and so incredible. And if there aren't quotas for you to move up to the next rank, doesn't matter. You're not moving on. You can have all the points. You can have all the interviews. You can have all the ERs that you want. If it's not there, you're not getting it. No, you're not. And so the, I just go the further up, you know, there, there are going to be less and less and less slots to fill. And so, yes, you can spend a long period of time in the military. But even the people who spend the longest time in the military enlisted, you can go up to 30 years. I've seen a couple of people go a little bit beyond 30, but you're like you're in like command positions at that point. Right. Um, but like, yeah, most people retire at 20. Like you can go on a little bit further, but again, you have to prove that you're valuable enough to go on further. Uh, and, I, and, and if you're if you're in the officer ranks, you can go beyond that, you know. But you're an admiral at that point. You've proven, yeah, you're you're very valuable to the military. Arguably, I've seen some some flag <laughs> officers that are not valuable to anything, but that's that's an entire. But, but I think the whole point, the, the reason why I brought that into this was because um, the militia the military that we have is, is structured around this idea of we're, you're a professional soldier when you're in, but then you're nobody when you come out. And I think a lot of soldiers deal with this. They deal with the fact that they had a status, they had a job, they had expectations and performance, and they come back into the civilian life and they're like, oh, I am just a civilian. Nobody's going to push me. I've got to push myself. Well, you and know? Even, <laughs> well, the militia, they, they weren't even a soldier all the time. Right. They were whatever they were all the time. And then they would come in and they would train and they would drill and they would do, uh, they would do militia duties. It was very similar to the way the National Guard is or the reserves are. That's literally where the National Guard came from. Absolutely. Was but, from the militias. And so those organized militias, um, there was basically, there was two categories when they started to form the country. And they understand they understood that there was going to be an organized and an unorganized. So the organized militia was going to be a state defense force, the National Guard, and the naval militia. So it actually didn't start as the United States Navy. It started as the naval militia. And the idea was is that you would that you could serve your country, but you really did go home on the weekends. And you went out and drilled. You had drill weekend, and you had those two weeks in the summer. They actually enumerated that in 1903 in, in what they called the Dick Act and actually said, this is the formalized training that you're required to have. You need to be at so many weekends. So it's you know one weekend a month and then two weeks in the summer. But that was actually... It's not necessarily the summer. That's the generally... Yeah, the it's usually what they do. Used, used time. But yeah, no, it doesn't have to necessarily be the summer. Yeah. But the idea behind it is that, that you know, that in order for these militias, which are not regular army, they're not, you know, the, their job day in and day out is not the army, but they need to maintain a certain level of proficiency and readiness. And the original militia that was unorganized was literally any male between the ages of 17 and 46. And so we eventually, you know, got the, the um, oh, selective service. I almost lost it. It was right there. But, uh, but the selective service came into effect to kind of enumerate how we do that process. But it was an unwritten, meaning you didn't have to go and sign a piece of paper and send it in through the post office to register for the selective services back in the 17, 1800s. But you were just already expected. If, if, they, if you had a general of the National Guard in your area and he comes to your community and says, I need all the guys fourteen to you know seventeen to forty six to come forward. It was actually eighteen to forty five, in the Second Militia Act of uh, of seventeen ninety two. Okay, they, they established eighteen to forty five as the age. Okay, but, you know we were talking about there with getting out of the military. Well, even even like going to the top enlisted rank, spending thirty years in the military. If you're going in at eighteen, fresh out of high school, you're you're getting out at like forty eight. Mm-hmm. 
So, and most people don't go that far. Right. So you still have a lot of years in your life. A lot of life. Yeah. Hopefully. As a citizen. As on, on average, you have a lot more years of your life where after your military service is done. Yeah, and, and then it's what makes us very unique from most other countries is the fact that we, we don't have a professional military that um, that's not necessarily always volunteer. There's a lot of countries that force it. Well, they're, they're, especially at the time. Yeah. Especially at the time, there was there were a lot of times where you couldn't really, if you would, you would volunteer to go into the military, you would never get out. Yeah. You would be doing it for life unless you were injured and then they would force you out. But that was the thing. Uh, at the time, they were worried about that that soldier force that would just do whatever they were ordered and they would have to go and, and they would just be that enforcement arm of the king or of the government. And so they wanted the military, the militia, to be of the people. They wanted it to be people who knew their neighbors, knew their friends, were not going to be part of that, only engulfed in the military that was only had allegiance to the king. They wanted them to have allegiance to their friends, their family, their neighborhood. So that was that was a big part of why they wanted to push against a militia. Uh, you know, or, part or, of push against a standing army. A standing army, yeah. And when I was looking at, um, there, there was this idea that started coming out. It was from this Baron von Steuben back in the day during the revolution. It was actually during the Confederation period between 1783 and 1787. Part of the Confederation. Right. What they were doing is there was this idea that he was putting out that we, we needed to have a select militia, a.k.a. basically a standing army, and then it would be about 21,000 men that were trained, armed, and full-time worked for the military um, and there was a lot of concerns that were brought to it. Uh, there was a man, John Smiley, uh, which he was mentioned in some of these, co- you know, some of the research I was doing, it was really hard to pin down. Some of these documents are just not, they're sitting in museums and they're not scanned in anywhere where you can just pull them up and actually read them yourself and verify the source. So I'm saying this is an unverified source because it didn't meet my criteria, but I think it gets at the sentiment was John Smiley, a man from Pennsylvania. And he said he had major concerns about there even being a select militia, a group of 21,000 men who are professionally trained and, and armed by the government instead of by their populace, by their local National Guard group. Um, and his big concern was that they would disarm the populace. And that was one of the driving themes in the debates during that, that period of Confederation where we we're trying to understand how do we build this nation up? If we are building a nation, what's it going to look like? And and those details start coming out, you know. Absolutely. Um, I, but I wanted to make that delineation that there was a distinction between a normal militia and then like a special one that's basically a standing army. They're like, hang on, the issue with that is again, disarming the people. And and so, you know, these debates were already had. These questions, that's why I don't feel like there's there's a lot of question about what the Second Amendment means. No, it, mean it's just us. It's just people not, not being intellectually ingenuous enough to go back and look at the original sources. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'll give you that. You know, the <sighs> and you, you're talking about the Articles of Confederation and one of the... Uh, James Madison was the writer of the Bill of Rights. Um, Thomas Jefferson did not write the Bill of Rights. He wrote the Declaration of Independence during the, uh, during the discussions of, of the Constitution. They, Thomas Jefferson was acting essentially as an ambassador to France. So he was in France <laughs> at the time. He was not there in the discussions of the Constitution. I didn't actually know that part, yeah. Yeah. So um, it was James Madison was the writer behind the Bill of Rights, um, the main person. There were other people that had a lot of inputs, and, of course, there was a lot of discussion. But the guy who actually put pen to paper, uh, James Madison, he also wrote uh, the Federalist Papers, or several of the Federalist Papers. John uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote the bulk of them, and then uh, John Jay wrote a handful. 
Um, but so in in a discussion on uh, June eighth, seventeen eighty nine. So they are discussing putting forth the Constitution. He says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained in arms is the best and most natural defense of a free country. Which is essentially a rewording of the Second Amendment. Honestly, I wish he would have written that as the Second Amendment. Right. But I um, I think they were going for brevity on the Second Amendment. I agree. The entire, even, even for the time, like now you've, we have dulled down the English language so much. Um, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the the Federalist Papers, all of those were easy reading back in the day. Right. Like, and they were supposed to be. The Federalist Papers are a little bit more highbrow, but you think about it from the standpoint of it's, those are all arguments for the Constitution. Like the, the, the entire point of the, of the Federalist Papers were these people uh, writing, they didn't have the talking heads on the major news networks like they did uh, back in the <laughs> yeah. day, like they do now. This was they got them. a newspaper once a week if they were lucky. Right. Well, they, gosh, once a week. I think that was well, maybe, maybe once a week. Anyway, so they would they would write articles and they would write uh, editorials and things like that to to get posted in the public square or in newspapers. Things where that would be that would be the discussion. That would be the them informing people because the states had to ratify the Constitution. It wasn't just passed by Congress. So the states had to ratify it, and this was and the states had to people ratification means more specifically they had to basically adopt it as well. Absolutely, and so the only way that they were going to get that to happen is if they got the people behind it, and the only way to get the people behind it was to argue for it and to give the arguments for it and explain why they were trying to do it that way, and that's what the Federalist Papers were all about. Um, but the Constitution was supposed to be easy to read and easy to understand. Like it wasn't one of these, like <laughs> my wife and I. When uh, we bought our house, you have to go through all of this legalese and sign and initial and all of these different things on all these documents that have all this just such specific wording because they just don't want anybody to be able to come in and twist it. But the founders didn't want to write it that way. A lot of the founders were were lawyers. But, but they, they wanted they wanted the common man. They wanted the people to be able to understand what was going into it. Exactly. So, uh, so I think that, that you're right that it was written instead of this quote that it was written as it is because it was supposed to be brief. It was supposed to be, Hey, you know, this is all we need to say. This is people will understand. Yeah. Unfortunately, people have twisted it. But then again, that goes to my first quote by, <laughs> by Thomas Jefferson yeah. is to look at the, look at the context of the people in the time. You know, I kept trying to dig around and I was trying to find where a lot of the arguments are as far as what it actually means. And there's so many people that try to drive at the point and we've already cleared it, but I'm just bringing it up as like, the biggest argument has always stemmed from the militia. Well, it says militia, right? Like this is supposed to be for the military to have arms, not the people. And I just can't break away from that. I can't seem to wrap my mind around that that argument because I'm, I really do try to understand other people's point of view, but it's well, so it's, specific. It's profound, it says the people. It doesn't restate the militia. Right, And but it also stems from a profound lack of understanding of what is the militia. Yeah. So, all right, so we can look at what Merriam-Webster says right now. Uh, so the first definition given by Merriam-Webster is a part of the organized armed forces of a country liable to call only in emergency. Uh, the second uh, part of that first definition says a body of citizens organized for military service. So it was always supposed to be the people. Like, yeah. I mean, in, in any definition, the militia is of, of the people. Um, so here's the second definition uh, listed by Merriam-Webster. 
the whole body of able-bodied male citizens declared by law as being subject to call for military service. Being subject, but not meaning active, not right. meaning a part of it. And and I think... Basically, people who are eligible for the draft. Right. Selective service. So right. um, I, I think we all understand that uh, the law, the way it was enumerated, if it was really just being specific to that definition, then it would have limited gun ownership to people between 17 and 45. It, right? I mean, would it not? Because that's the only militia aged, you know, that it that it defines. That was what was <laughs> accepted as the militia age, right? And, and and I mean, we've adopted that. That's what the selective service says now. It's basically like you know, this is our group of people that could be called into service, you know, for our for our military purposes. Now, here's where I'll start to give a little bit of pushback, well, specifically well, because the militias have a negative connotation to them. Even nowadays, I mean, especially anytime you hear militia, you hear basically ideas of it being a supremacist group. And, you know, white supremacist group specifically. Let's, let's, let's oh, be yeah, specific. white supremacy nowadays. Correct. So... Do you know that the, your family is white supremacy? Well... Meritocracy I'm is hearing, white supremacy? I'm, I'm hearing these things may be. So <laughs> we're going to have to study those subjects because apparently there's a lot of things that we grew up being misled on. And so maybe they deserve a little more attention just like the Second Amendment like we're doing now. Um, but let's... I, I do have to be honest. I have to be, be upfront about the fact that, the, that especially in the South... Militias were these small community groups that were organized to handle military and kind of policing type purposes. And they were frequently used to track and hunt down slaves that were breaking away and trying to go to the north. And that was all throughout the 1800s until we had the Civil War was these militias had a very negative connotation because that was almost their primary purpose. Well, there were also militias in the north that stood up against them. Exactly. And I'm not because I'm not trying to say that, you know, there wasn't some good going on the both, other side. Both before <laughs> and after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, there would be groups of uh, of southern individuals that would go that would drive into the northern states and they would try to recover their lost property, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and there would be northerners that would stand up against them, that they would bear arms against the southerners to say, "No, you're not coming into our communities. You're not trying to take people." Who uh, a lot of times people in those communities, people who had who had been slaves but had come out, come uh, escaped from slavery and come on and settled in those northern cities and made lives for themselves and were parts of the community now. And right. They, and there were northerners that say, "No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let you take them out of here." Or, no, we just we think that it's absolutely abhorrent that you guys are continuing the practice of slavery and we're not going to let you go through our town or, or our beyond that. What's your for these people? What's your militia doing in our state? Yeah. You know, that, I mean, that's another, yeah, that's another big thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like whether you, you would, no matter what your view was on, on slavery, it was the idea that you're not going to have a band of, of trained people coming through here and, and enforcing their law from their state. Absolutely. And so because at that time, there was already states that were decided not to practice slavery. They said, hey, we're, we're not doing that game. So... Oh my that, gosh, I want to go back into Thomas Jefferson right now. But I know. <laughs> there, anyways, I'm not trying to sidetrack us on slavery, but I do want to show that there was some negative connotation with the idea of militias. And that's why I think it brings up a, a lot of these issues. When people talk about um, American exceptionalism, these are the, the the chinks in the armor that people see. And and my point is, I'm glad you you know are showing the counterpoints, but this is why I want to push back a little bit and say, I, I understand that there is a history here. There's a history of, of us having a United States in the beginning that allowed slavery to continue for a period of time. There, there was a moratorium on, on abolition, but you know Lincoln made good on that promise that we were going to abolish slavery. So um, that's a whole other debate. The point being, you could never do that if you didn't have militias to be, being able to protect their communities. 
But on the same token, you also couldn't have the slaves stay on the farm if you weren't hunting them down and keeping them there. And so the militias were also being used for bad, not just good. No, I completely agree with that. And um, But that's that's the truth of anything. Yeah, it's yeah. complex. It's nuanced. It's not, there's no one given answer. Uh, I mean, why, why did people have... Why did people have firearms? So, I mean, think about the fact. So, in the animal kingdom, if, you know, every animal has the ability to defend itself. Like, they have some sort of, exactly, they have some sort of evolutionary imperative, something that has been built into them that has given them ability to defend themselves, whether that is living in a herd, whether that is camouflage, whether it is horns or fangs or claws. You know, those things exist so that they can defend themselves. And these animals will defend their lives, the lives of their families, whether that's a family group, whether it's just their offspring, whatever. Like, <laughs> don't go after a mama bear's cubs is, is, pretty, <laughs> right. is the thing that comes to mind. Uh, but they'll also defend their territory. Yeah. That is extremely prevalent in the animal kingdom. And, and you could, if you're a God-fearing person, you'd say that's a God-given thing. Well, and then, uh, actually, <laughs> I, I misspoke by saying it's extremely prevalent. That is everywhere in the animal kingdom. It's not absent anywhere. No, it is not. <laughs> and so, as human beings, we have the same the same desire, the same need to protect ourselves, to protect our family, to protect our, protect our territory. And whether that territory is your house, your apartment, where you live, whether it's your city, your community, your state... Your nation, your job, your job. Yeah, there's 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 so many things that we could, we could be that could fall into the realm of your territory, right? But you're gonna want to defend it, and you have the right to defend it, and that's the whole point. I, 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 so, con- controversial point here: the Second Amendment does not give you the right to a machine gun. Really, the Second Amendment does not give you the right to an AR-15. Oh, you sound so, like, anti-gun right now. The Second Amendment doesn't give you a right to any firearm whatsoever. Wow. I feel like I feel like it says in arms, fa- at least. In right? fact, the Constitution doesn't grant you a single right. That's crazy. I feel like it does. I feel like it's even called the Bill of Rights. The entire purpose of the Constitution is to protect your rights that you inherently have. That was deep. That was really deep. No, it's it's really not. If you if you read <laughs> if you read the Constitution, if you read the Declaration of Independence, you know they they don't say government grants you this right. right. It doesn't say the right of the people the right of the people to keep and bear arms is granted by the government. It says shall not be infringed. And in all of the sections before, because that's an amendment to the Constitution, mm-hmm. but in all the sections before, none of it says we give the people the right to bear arms. Right, or we give the people the right of, to free speech, or give the people the right to uh, to free exercise of religion. We're saying we recognize what you already got. Exactly. Yeah, and, okay. and you know it, it, that drives to so many other points. You know, as far as like the idea was, you can't create a free people unless they already have something. You know, they have to have freedom, and and the only way to give people freedom is to say, hey, we're going to respect those rights because who was not respecting the rights when they formed the Constitution? It was the British government that was not respecting them. Absolutely, and. We got off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, going back to talking about, you know, animals' right to defense, animals' ability to defend themselves. Again, a right inherent in their being, just Mm -hmm. like we have a right to defense inherent in our being. And you don't have to believe that there's a higher power in order to believe that there's inherent things about us as human beings. Right. There there were founding fathers who were atheists. Yeah. You know, John Locke was was an atheist. You know, there were several other other founding fathers. And John Locke is a fantastic philosopher. Yeah. Um, If you ever... You ever get a chance? Read "Common Sense" by John Locke. 
um, it's it's absolutely absolutely incredible. Um, anyway, the the point is is that that's why in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution they said nature and nature's God. Yeah. So it is not saying a specific God. It's it not saying, saying the Christian God. It's not saying the Muslim God. It's not saying Buddha. It's saying nature and nature's God, meaning whatever's controlling nature. Whatever created nature, whatever mm-hmm. created all of us, no matter what you believe, something put us here, whether you believe that it's the, the primordial soup, I don't know, I don't care. <laughs> right. The idea is that inherent in our being, we have these rights. Mm-hmm. So so essentially, yes, we, we have the right to defend ourselves. And as humans, our evolutionary defense mechanism is our mind. Absolutely. Our ability to problem solve, solve our ability to create. And we are also a collective community. We, we have that, that kind of a mentality. And so collectively we have throughout history developed weapons to defend ourselves. Yeah. Whether it be a stick or a sharp rock or a sling with a rock (laughs) or a piece of copper. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, trebuchets, uh, catapults, javelins. I mean, yeah, there's 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 a myriad of arms, and that's why it says arms, because it's not being specific to saying you only get firearms. It's not being specific to saying you only get bows and arrows. No, absolutely. Um, a 1782 dictionary from the College of William and Mary, which is actually where several of our founding fathers were educated. Mm-hmm. It's a college in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, and so the dictionary there states arms as any weapon of offense or armor of defense. Yeah, so, so it's offensive and defensive. Right. So, and, and the reason, the specific reason, I, 1782 was the earliest dictionary I could find from an area where I could feasibly say that the uh, the founders were, and most of them were educated well before 1782. But the, the thing is, I doubt that there was much change in that in that uh, in the definition. definition yeah, it, it wasn't. It probably wasn't a meandering definition at no, that point. No, not at all. <laughs> So, but any weapon of offense or armor of defense. So, yeah. So we've we've gotten to this point where firearms are not the pinnacle of of uh, defensive weaponry, but they are the most attainable. Well, and let's be honest. Weaponry. Where do you go from there? Well, I mean, I mean you've got we've got <laughs> rail guns, we've got tomahawk missiles, we've got uh, we've got right. a lot you of get, things. You but get into silly land pretty quick. Yeah, no, you do. Th- as but, far as the single man and the individual's right to defense. It is one of the most clear, basic, understandable, you know, tools that puts you at an equal playing field with every other human being. Well, again, and the mo- one of the most attainable. So human beings as a species, we have developed this. We have developed firearms and we have passed it on to our children. It's we our technology. Further. We have developed it further and passed it on to their children and so forth. It's, it's a legacy and it is to be able to defend ourselves with. Let's, let's be very clear about something as well. I personally feel, and I think there's a lot of evidence to support it, we couldn't have civilized society without weapons. Period. No, I well, so and I, you look back at it, think about the, the school playground. It was the biggest, baddest bully that ran everything. Monopoly on violence. Exactly. But the 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 biggest, baddest bully, like nobody could stand up against him. I mean, like he was way taller than you, and way bigger than you, and way stronger than you. Like, what were you gonna do? And I didn't have this problem. Chuck a rock at his head. <laughs> right. Well, you could chuck a rock at his head. Exactly. That's that's the best option that you had. Beat him with a stick. Something. Yeah. You had to pick up a weapon. Or team up. Or team up. 
create but, a little militia on the playground. Exactly. Go there get the dodgeballs and pepper them. No. <laughs> the, 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 the pack, the herd. <laughs> yep. You know, defense. So, and and that's the idea is that you know we've, but the thing is you don't always have multiple people. What if he's cornered you, yeah. out there on the playground and yeah. nobody and the isolation sees is is dangerous and you need an equal playing field. Right, and that's the thing is the the gun is an incredible equalizer. Like I remember hearing a quote a long time ago, and this, of course, was praising Samuel Colt, the inventor of the revolver. Inventor, quote unquote. Uh, anyway, inventor of the of the the modern revolver, the popularizer. Well, because <laughs> the, mo- the most effective most effective functioning revolver mm-hmm. um, design. Anyway, uh, so the idea is that they said God didn't make all men equal. Samuel Colt did, or God made all men. Samuel Colt made them equal. Um, <laughs> That's kind of a neat quote. <laughs> well, and so I, I don't remember which one. It's one of those two. But essentially, yeah. the idea is that that you can take. You, it's no longer a matter of I'm 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 outstrengthed, mm-hmm. or I'm outsized, or I'm outnumbered, or even outskilled, or outskilled. Right. So the thing is, is that now I've got. It doesn't matter if I am a 100-pound, uh, five-foot-nothing female, and I'm going up against a 300-pound, six-foot-five... Uh, gorilla of a man. Gorilla of a man, <laughs> right, who has been aggressive all of his life and fought and, and knows and has how to... testosterone. And, and knows how to, <laughs> how to just absolutely destroy me. I've had trainings with firearms, and I've got a firearm on me. Now that's... Now... now it's unfair for the, them. The, the, the odds are stacked guy. in my deck. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So the, the idea is that it is an equalizer. You know, that you can have that even playing field, that you can have that opportunity to defend yourself against somebody that would normally just absolutely victimize you. I know that we're getting in more a little bit into the modern talk on a, on a couple of these points, but again, it's I want to understand the relevance to where we're at today in in a little bit of light in this podcast when we're talking about the history of it. Well, it even and goes back it even goes back to the history because the only reason why we were able to as as a fledgling nation or even just a group of colonists right. were able to stand up against the greatest military in the world was because we had firearms. Yeah. It was because we had, we the, had the same technology. kind of weapons that they did yes. that we could stand up against them. Yes. And we could be somewhat effective. Maybe, you know, tactics-wise, no, but well, a bullet's no. still tactics a bullet. Wise, tactics-wise, we were superior because we, were they wanted to, we did guerrilla <laughs> tactics, yeah. and they just wanted to stand out in lines the same way that Alexander the Great did with his phalanx and spears. Yeah. And actually, they're Sarissa, but that's anyway. Um, that's beside the point. But <laughs> so... you. They're trying to do that those same old tactics, and we're mm-hmm. like, uh, no, we're going to take you out from the woods, hiding under cover. Well, one of the things that I, I, that drives me to the history in the modern day where it matters is uh, the disparity. Uh, there's a disparity in um, modern day that is constantly talked about, and it goes back to the slavery issue as there being an underclass and, and an overclass. And if you put the control and the monopoly of violence into the hands of the upper class and say only they can afford to defend themselves right only the only the politician that's going to washington all the time has bodyguards right you as a private citizen living in in a ghetto here in the united states you don't have private security your law enforcement is three to four minutes away in any given situation which is not very effective when you're dying okay so you know it's 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 there, but it's your ability to defend yourself. If we take away the right to bear arms, 
that literally, like, I mean, if you take away guns, why can you not take away knives? Why can you not take away a trebuchet? Why can you not take away any form of weapon, offensive or defensive, if you can restrict guns? It's kind of all-encompassing because it's, it's bare arms. And I think it disproportionately affects low-income communities. It disproportionately affects minority communities because I know that, that – I have great resources and I absolutely try to capitalize on, I try to capitalize on the fact that I, I can go down the street and buy ammunition once in a while, even though it's scarce, you know? Um, but I've, I've got the ability to do things that a lot of people that don't have the financial capital are able to do. But again, it's on an individual level. I'm, I'm not even, I don't make enough that I can go hire personal security to go walk through downtown Chicago where handguns are illegal and people are getting shot 14, 15 people a night. Well, and it's not just, yes, all of those people are disproportionately affected but it's also the people that are easier victims that are disproportionately affected that's what i mean yeah. somebody like you and you or i like we are both big dudes yeah like we are we are tall we are well built like i i, I had a point where i was out in uh i was out in naples with the navy uh we pulled into uh we pulled into that port i was in a store and the two people that i was with one of them was a female and the other was a let's say less than threatening male Okay. And so we, they had walked out of the shop before me and it was dark in Naples. And I see these two guys making a beeline for him. And I'm finished up in the shop and I walk out and I draw attention to myself and draw attention that I'm going Make to. Make a little them. noise. Hey and guys. I'm, yeah. No, just talk, <laughs> just, just talking to my friends. Just having one more person there. Well, it wasn't <laughs> just one more pure person. It was me. Presence, it was yeah. it was the fact that there was this six foot two hundred twenty pound guy right. that was walking out to him, and then these two guys immediately changed their direction, mm-hmm. immediately walked walked in between buildings yeah. because there was a different presence of threat there. Right, it wasn't the easy victims. Now, the thing is, you can't always have you if you weren't naturally born our size, you weren't naturally born with with our kind of intimidating presence, then. You know, you, you need something else. You can't always have somebody with you. I, I watched this uh, this TikTok video with this girl talking about all of these things that she does to try to be aware, and she calls up friends, and she doesn't leave the house unless she can, uh, after dark unless she can be on the phone with a male friend, right? Like visibly on the phone to to deter anybody from coming up to her, and you know all of those things. Like that's that is because of not being able to have a firearm. I don't know whether this lady's in a little area that she can't have a firearm, but she obviously doesn't have a firearm. Well, it's it's clearly and, not an option to her that she understands. It's, right. it's something that she cannot rely upon. Right. And the fact is that she would be a whole lot safer if she got training mm-hmm. and a firearm. Absolutely. Not just the firearm. <laughs> but, yeah. but no, it's like I, I, I equate it to, hey, you have a car. Can you get around? Yeah. Absolutely. No, you have a car and you know how to drive it. So you oh, this is around. true. You have to have the technology to operate it. <laughs> you have to have the mental software <laughs> yeah. to be able to, to, to perform the, whatever it is, with, to be able to, to operate that piece of equipment. And it's the same thing with firearms. You need training. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, this is, you know, this comes up a lot in modern issues. Like firearms are so easy to operate that almost anybody can pull the trigger and make one go. Right. Absolutely. But with proper training, you know, like the four fundamentals of basic firearm safety that is just absolutely drilled into your head, whether you're going through a civilian course, a police course, or a military course, 
these things don't leave you. And those, you know, those, it's the foundation of honestly, it teaches you as a human being, not just with firearms, your, your vehicle's a weapon. Like everything becomes a weapon and you have to start making choices in life that aren't just so careless and carefree. You're being very tactical about every decision you make at that point. And, yeah, and you know, there, there are a lot of weapons that are available to people. If you're, if you're so inclined, <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, there have been, there have been mass stabbings, just like there have been mass shootings. There was, yeah. um, in, in Nice, France, there was a guy who took a, a box truck and drove up onto the, the sidewalk and was running over people, running people down with a box truck. Yeah. You know, you've got Oklahoma city where a guy took materials that I could easily go and get from any hardware store and made a bomb blew up a city block. Yeah. You know, there, there are always going to be ways for people to kill. You have mass stabbing that happened in China several years back in 2016, something like that. Well, I mean, you had over 20 people that were killed and over, I think it was over 30 people that were injured by a crazy man with a knife. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like I said, if we start getting into the, the definition of bearing arms and we try to limit that to just firearms, I just don't think that equates. I think everybody can understand. It means, arms period and whatever actually, you can arm yourself with and i'm actually trained in the use of a knife right <laughs> i've i've i did a lot of martial arts and one of the martial arts that i did was kali and i learned knife fighting mm-hmm. i don't want to go up against somebody with a knife oh no it's I uh, to me it's so much scarier than a gun oh absolutely because a gun is just kind of over i can't imagine well, somebody gun, coming at me and like i have nothing or even if i had a knife myself and having to go one-on-one in a knife fight with somebody that is this like to me there's nothing scarier Oh, it's absolutely There's no terrifying. worse way to die because, like, you're probably both going to die if you're any good at fighting with a well, knife. You're both, no, the, <laughs> and the, it's going to be idea, painful. The idea that they, the thing that they teach you if, if you go and you learn Kali or you learn any sort of knife fighting, you're going to get cut. Absolutely. If you work with, if you work with people that are serious about it, they actually have these uh, stun knives. Yeah. Um, they're knives that have an Contact electrical charge. Yeah. yeah, they have an electrical charge along one edge of the blade. <laughs> and so if you get touched by that blade, it zaps you. It hurts. Yeah, you remember that yeah. you're going to get it. <laughs> so that you, you and that teaches you to, to continue to fight through it. But it also teaches you that, hey, you know what? Bruce Lee was an actor. And yes, he knew martial arts, but he was an actor. Yeah, so he, you watch his videos, they're, they're, you watch the movies, they're not real. You're watching cooperative human beings on the other side of his attack. Right. So, And you don't go in with the anticipation of, I'm good enough to beat everyone, because you don't have no idea what somebody's skill level is. Right. And so, but the thing is, is that I'm going to have to get up and close with somebody with a knife. Like, it, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get messy. It's going to be difficult. But with a gun, I can stay far away. Yeah. And the thing, other thing that you talked about, a gun is unidirectional. If I'm up close with somebody with a gun, all I have to do is keep that that barrel away from, like, not not pointed at What I don't want, yeah. (laughs) But that knife is so much easier to manipulate and to be able to get in close. And and the edges on there, you have single-edge blades, you have double-edge blades that, you know, they're... It's a lot more difficult to get that into a safe place where you're not in danger from it. Yeah. And I think just to kind of summarize before we, you know, kind of tie up, I, I think the Second Amendment is not strictly unilaterally defined as being guns, cannons, weapons of war. I don't think that that falls within that purview. And when we hear modern conversations about, well, what was it intended for? It literally, it didn't put that restriction in place. And I understand that there's, you know, federal laws that have been passed and that there's like, this is one of the, this is the last little bit that I want to get into with you is to explain a viewpoint I have with my cousin. He 
was pretty adamant. He, he definitely like he has like twenty Second Amendment shirts because he just thinks it's the coolest thing in the world, and, and we got to save it forever. Which I agree, we, we we need to enshrine it and keep it sacred because it's a part of who we are as a country. But I gave him a little bit of pushback. His point was to me that there's there's certain weapons that we can't have, and that shouldn't be that way. That the Second Amendment was basically an open ended book. It didn't define a restriction. It didn't say you can't have certain weapons. And so I started having a little talk with him, and I said, okay. The reality is you can pretty much have almost any weapon that you want. We have laws on the book that allow you to have fully automatic firearms. You have to follow, You have to have a background check every year. You have to have you know, a special class license with the ATF. They have to be able to come out and do inspections anytime. You have to be accountable for every firearm. It has to have a specific storage location that is an ATF-approved you know, way to store it. And then you have to account for every time it's been used. It has to be checked in and checked out. But how is that any different from the military and holding their own armory? right? It's the same thing. They check out every bullet, they check out every gun. And so there's a way for you to do it. And, and so I, he started giving me examples He's like, well, you can't own a tank. Well, yeah, you can. There's a lot of private tank collections here in the United States there are. and there's restrictions on what they're allowed to do. They can't keep live ammunition with the tank, right? They got to keep it separate because they understand that it's just you, something that's a little too dangerous to keep live. Okay. But we do that as firearms owners. I keep my ammunition completely separate from my firearm if it's not on me. Right. If I check it out of my armory, then I'm going to go out. I'm, I'm hot. I'm ready to go down range. If something happens, I'm ready to go. If it's in storage, it's in a safe location. So same thing with a tank. You can own a tank. You can own ex-military vessels all you want. Uh, but to arm something up for battle and that sort of thing, there's a lot of restrictions. And But my, my point is there becomes a point where you can't even have that discussion. It, it would be completely um, against the idea of just logic would have to pass you to think that private citizens should be able to own nuclear weapons, for instance. So here's what I'm, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go into Federalist 29, uh, a specific quote from Federalist 29. So it states, if circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people. While there is a large body of citizens, little, if at all inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. So the idea there is that we should be able to have anything that the military has. And again, Federalist 29, an argument for the Second Amendment, an argument for the ratification of the, the Constitution. So they're stating that we, we should be able to have anything that has now the, what the, I will the say, counterpoint to that to be real quick because I'm going to push back because I also want to understand why it ended up getting defined in a way that did in the second amendment because it was pretty it, it was left as an open door but the pushback being is oh that's great you're reading a federalist paper that's not the constitution that's not the amendment so, so I as agree. much as that's the in the head of the people that are coming up with it it's not what is on paper. So I will again take that back to that first quote that I gave by Alex by uh, Thomas Jefferson, where he talks about that we need to be able to look at and put our heads in the mindset of the framers, not look at it the way that we might look at it from a later standpoint, but to look at it the way that the framers put it. And the thing is that the Constitution was written to be changeable. 
The whole Bill yeah. of Rights was amendments to the original version of the Constitution that states wouldn't pass unless it had that Bill of Rights. So they amended it so that it would have those rights enumerated, that these are safe from government infringement. There have been 27 amendments to the Constitution. So I might, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 27. Anyway. I'll Google it so, while you talk. So we have, we have made changes to the Constitution. We have made changes to what is ha- what uh, the way that our government is ran. You're spot on. Red is spot on with 27. Bingo. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so uh, no, the, the, the thing is, is that if, if things changed, if then we would be able to change it. The, the idea that the Constitution is a living document is true. It is living in the way that we can amend it. We can change it. We can make it into whatever fits our our modern needs. However, it is through a process. It is not through selective interpretation. So I will say that, you know, the, the founders had no idea that we would have nuclear weapons or that we would have um, chemical and biological weapons. Uh, they, how could they? Right. But, but they also understood, if you go backwards with that, they also understood that the people back in, you know, ancient Rome didn't think there would be something that could throw a rock 1,200 feet per second no. that's handheld. Exactly. They're, they understood. <laughs> these, these were not dumb guys. They understood that weapons would evolve. Um, I mean, they were already weapons that were far beyond just the idea of a traditional uh, flintlock pistol or flintlock uh, musket. You know, we had developed rifles in, in their time. We had, there were, um, in the 1700s, there was a development of what was called the puckle gun, which was essentially like a revolving, uh, a revolver for a, a cannon, for artillery. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, the belt and flintlock, which was actually a uh, development. There was a series of balls and powder and uh, multiple flintlock uh, mechanisms on a single rifle. And Belton had actually um, presented this rifle to the Continental Army in order to have them, uh, to, he tried to sell it to them to, for their use in the revolution, and he wanted too much money, so they didn't do it. But with a single pull of that trigger, it would fire up to 20 rounds mm-hmm. from that belt and flintlock. And then you had, um, there was the Girondoni air rifle. The Girondoni air rifle um, used, uh, I want to say it was uh, compressed gas, but essentially it, it was able to fire up to 30 rounds without reloading. And Thomas Jefferson actually outfitted the Lewis and Clark expedition with Girondoni air rifles. So, um, and then there were pepper box revolvers had been around for a long time. Those fired multiple shots. There were a lot of other uh, guns that were able to fire multiple shots, but there, there was but already to a say, known evolution of firearms where they knew about being able to fire multiple shots. They knew it was going to get there. Well, beyond whether versions. they knew that, compared to the modern counterparts of their time, being the British Army, they had equal weaponry available. And like I said, they ownership. actually had some superior weaponry in the form of the, the Pennsylvania and Kentucky rifles. Right. And so that, that's kind of the only point I want to drive at. I did want to make that point that... Uh, clearly they didn't think of nuclear weapons. And I think that we could all agree that I don't believe private citizens should be having nuclear weapons. Well, and then I'll take that back to what was talked about in Federalist 29, where they talk about people being, um, people being a little, little inferior, little if at any in, um, in training and the use of arms. And so there I would say that 
first of all, like go. Our, I'll, I'll start with chemical and biological weapons. We have can we have uh, treaties that prevent the use of chemical and biological weapons. Right. I don't support anybody, governments or anyone, having chemical and biological weapons. Absolutely, they're, they're just terrible. And so, and I, I actually I personally support nuclear disarmament. I think it'd be great to be able to roll it back to something very reasonable, so that we can cut down the risk. Number one. Well, but. I don't think you're ever going to rewind the clock to pre-Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, and the thing is, I don't support nuclear disarmament just from the standpoint of nobody's going to give up all the weapons. Mm-mm. I do not trust that Russia or China or North, North Korea, Korea yeah, yeah. Or, or Iran. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. If, if, they got, if they've got a weapon, I, there are people that I do not believe would ever give them up. Because if everybody else gave them up, then they would know that they have an advantage. So... I, I don't support nuclear disarmament, but I will say there are a lot of regulations, again, with go into nuclear weapons and in the, in the ways that they're stored, in the ways that they are manufactured, in the ways that they are built, and in, in, in the ways that they are upkept. Like, there are a lot of regulations. And Chernobyl. Yeah. No, that's that's <laughs> that was nuclear power, not nuclear weapons. Uh, Completely different beast. Uh, just, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this. Just, just really, really quick. Anybody who thinks that a nuclear reactor can explode, you're wrong. A nuclear reactor can't explode. Now, you can, the, the water that's inside of the reactor, that's cooling the reactor, you can superheat that and to make a pressurized state <laughs> and make that explode. That It's basically like a pressure bomb. The, the, the water superheats and expands to the point where the vessel can no longer contain it, and that will explode. But in order to make a nuclear reactor into a nuclear bomb, you would have to take it apart and re-put it back together in a completely different way. And then and it's no longer a nuclear it, reactor. And then organize it as a bomb. Yeah. But like it's, it's just two different processes no, completely. Yeah. So nuclear reactors cannot explode. And if you see any movies where they explode, there's a giant mushroom cloud. They're full of crap. Yeah. Anyway. It's not a giant mushroom cloud. It's a big glowing ball. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's a big ball of steam. Yes. what it is. Well, no, no. I'm saying after the explosion, oh. the nuclear decay is a glowing orb. That melts through the vessel. Is, yeah. Well, and not just melt. I'm talking about after the explosion. After right. we're it talking melts, about Chernobyl. It, no, I'm talking about like a meltdown. So yeah. it would melt down and it would melt through the vessel and go down to the floor and create the elephant's foot. Yep. Google the elephant's foot if you're yes. interested in Chernobyl. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, but essentially, like it's it's so cost prohibitive. So the idea that, and the other thing is that the it was about defense. And especially if you're trying to defend yourself, if a nation is trying to defend itself from another nation, you've got uh, nuclear weapons. I don't Let's like the use of them, but they would, but they would be, they would go up against a, a, an enemy population. But it will have massive casualties, massive collateral damage. Here's here's that's, what I, I th- I'm going to go a different direction with this because we're well, talking about the finish, technology. Well, but let me finish this about okay. So it would have ma- it, just like in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it had massive collateral damage. There were there were millions, I believe, of civilians that died. A nuclear weapon cannot discriminate the way that I mean, we've got smart bombs now that can punch right into the specific bunker that you want and take out only the room that you want. Mm-hmm. So the the thing is, is that well, a, a nuclear weapon can't do that. It is a massive area of effect. It is going to destroy so much and kill so many people and that's not a defensive weapon that's an offensive weapon that that is it is strictly offensive 
now, which we're allowed to have offensive weapons based uh, off what we discussed. And yeah, it does say any weapon of offense, but the thing is, <laughs> I, I will go to and okay, I, I would be, I, I would be for a, a constitutional amendment that would say, hey, no use of, um, no use of nuclear weapons or chemical or biological weapons if they clearly defined that everything else is fine. But again, it goes back to a cost prohibitive standpoint of like really, it's really not easy or cheap to 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 have a nuclear do you want to do you want to talk about a weapon this is where i'm actually going with with my conversation is that taking a sideline to nuclear weapons there's new technology that's even more dangerous and a form of arms and that is computers and computer hacking and a great example of this and and the only reason we're bringing this into the context is because what is the second amendment going to control and what does it encompass when it talks about arms i think at this point we have to acknowledge that because the economy is based on computers and because weapons are based on computers, the launch codes, the you name it, everything is based on computer hardware and software that we're using. When you see something happen where Israel realizes they don't need to throw a nuclear weapon at Iran to deal with the problem, what did they do? They recently did this. They hacked their systems. And they shut them down likely for a decade. That's how bad a damage well, they set did. Them back. Yeah, because they have to restart everything, all yeah, their processes. They deleted they, so much. And, and, just, and shutting those computers down and, and destroying their ability, like the technology being lost that was being preserved. The data. And everything, yeah, and, yeah, and the machinery stopping. A lot of the machinery that they used to refine, if it stops, it solidifies, and you've got to start over again. Yeah. You have to rebuild the plant. So that's essentially what they did. And they did that with the stroke of a key. They, somebody hit the enter button or clicked the mouse that made that happen. And that's what I'm saying is like, like, what are we going to include in this umbrella of the Second Amendment? And I think it goes to any offensive or defensive weapon. And I believe that if we start restricting anything related to, I mean, the nuclear weapon one is just a tough subject. But if below that, let's go a little lower level here to just anything that's crew served, man served. Okay. I, I think the nuclear weapon goes into like, you know, a group served weapon, right? But that you as a private citizen here in the United States, you should have access to pretty much anything because we're allowed to be responsible. We're allowed to take on some risk and yeah, hold us accountable. Hold, hold us as, you know, accountable for the decisions we make with what we do. That's why we have laws that prevent you from going out and just shooting people up when you're mad at them. You know, like we have laws, we can enforce them, but unfortunately, laws are reactionary. Um, and that's why. I feel like when we start talking the the umbrella of what the Second Amendment is going to constitute, it's going to start constituting things like electronic warfare. It's going to start constituting things like you know Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, things like that, and how those are weaponized and how those are used. Because then it becomes economic warfare, which is just as devastating, if not more devastating, a lot of times than anything else. I mean, North Korea is a great example of that. You just crippled a nation by isolating them from everything, and so they they try to make you know buddies with China and Russia so they can get some help. Because they've got nothing else they can bring to the world. Yeah, that's fair. So, you know, it's just, I guess that's kind of the last little pushback on the idea of the Second Amendment is, you know, it's it's either all-encompassing or it's not. And are we going to define it? And if we start defining it, at what point do we feel like it's infringing upon the, the, the meat and potatoes, the heart of the issue? So, I don't know. Anything else you want to add on that? Um... I mean, I've got a lot of other things that I could talk about. I've got a lot of other quotes from different people. Um, uh, I will, I will add, um, I will add one more thing. Where um, so George Mason said in an address to the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and uh, so they were ratifying the um, 
sorry, they were they were trying to ratify the Virginia uh, Declaration or Virginia Constitution. And he was saying, uh, I ask, who are the militia? They consist of the whole people, except for a few political, few public officers. So basically, politicians, rather than being the the greater people, were actually the people exempt from 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 the protections, protections of the Second of the Amendment. Second Amendment. <laughs> if you want to say that it was only only for the militia, um, and I've got a whole bunch of other quotes here that uh, that talk about. Uh, the militia, I, I go into, I've got stuff on the second uh, militia act. And the first militia act was basically just established what is the militia, not necessarily a lot of specifics. But the first militia act was passed on May 2nd of 1792. The second militia act was passed on May 8th of 1792. Rather than the process that we go through now of, of months of debate and and harboring back and forth. They and, took it issue by issue. Putting, yeah, and they, they took it issue by issue. They didn't have this massive 450,000-page bill that had uh, that nobody read through and just stuck all their earmarks in in order to pass it. No, they, they passed issue by issue. So if they had one aspect to it that they passed and they liked and they wanted to debate more aspects of it, they passed this. And then six days later, they passed the second one. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it, talks about, um, it talks about the militia and it even talks about um, the accoutrements that the people were supposed to armed themselves with that it talked about uh, every citizen so enrolled in the uh, so enrolled in the militia essentially and that was the 18 to, to 45 year uh, males uh, shall within six months thereafter provide himself with a good musket or firelock a sufficient bayonet and belt two spare flints a knapsack a pouch with box uh, with with a box therein to contain not less than 24 cartridges suited to the bore of his musket or firelock. Each cartridge to contain a proper quantity of, of powder and a ball or uh, with, sorry, or with a good rifle, knapsack, shot uh, and powder horn, shot pouch and powder horn, 20 balls suited for the bore of his rifle and a quarter pound of powder and shall appear so armed, and, and basically goes on into uh, talking about how they, you know, how they were to uh, arm themselves whenever they showed up for for muster. It gives what the officers should have, and essentially the officers were supposed to have a sword in addition to <laughs> everything else. Right. Um, but you know, it, it talks about that they shall uh, provide themselves with that. So this was not the. This was not the government providing them with those arms. This, this wasn't was, the National were, Guard, you know, fund. Paying right. for these weaponry, right? This was the people providing them those arms for themselves, and you know, and I don't believe that's in, unique to Virginia. I believe this was nearly no, every this, state. This was this was the federal, this was the the, the Congress that passed this. Okay, um, but what else is what's not included in there? Is any sort of provision to disarm yourself after forty five when you're no longer this is true for the militia? Well, this is true. There's there's I don't think there's. A, we could probably dig and do a Google search, but I don't think that there's a history that supports the idea that you have to disarm yourself at some point. No, there's not. And I've got a bunch more, but I know we're going to, we want to wrap this up and we can talk about other things on uh, a future podcast. Going Cause I to, think there's a more modern element that a lot of the notes that I've got kind of fit into a little bit better. Um, you know, we really kind of want to stick to the history on this one and talk about how the history slightly is affecting our, our current interpretation where Sometimes it really shouldn't. It should just be left to what it should, you know, what it was. Absolutely. And I, I will I will close out my argument uh, with another uh, quote from Richard Henry Lee, the gentleman who I said uh, made the motion to 
separate from Britain, said a militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms. 